It's Sunday, it's seven, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz, and in just a few hours, it'll be Valentine's Day. So if you have to run out and buy flowers and candy, you're excused. But if you've already taken care of things, then come with us on romantic excursions from Our Miss Brooks, The Life of Riley, and... A couple of marriages gone awry in Dragnet and Let George Do It. But George is George Valentine. And we'll hear Cary Grant and Myrna Loy in the screwball comedy, I Love You, again, from the Lux Radio Theater. So if you happen to be near someone special, sidle up to them, forget about anything that bothered you last week, certainly don't think about what may go wrong next week, and instead, get a little closer and put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator sure has, as they used to say, an eye for the ladies. But that's not in evidence in this week's episode. Maybe that's because it aired a week and a half after Valentine's Day, on February 25th, 1962, over CBS. It's called The Mixed Blessing Matter, and it comes from the series Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Hi, Johnny. This is Charlie. Charlie Warren? Right. Worldwide Mutual out in L.A.? None other. Charlie, you're a bum. I don't even know you. Huh? <laughs> now, what brought that on? That last case you handed me out there back in December. Now, take it easy, pal. Why not come out here to nice, warm, sunny Southern California, Johnny, and get away from all that freezing New England weather you said? Well, sure I did. So where did I end up hunting for that killer? 7,000 feet up in the mountains where I nearly froze my ears off. I am only just beginning to thaw out, so I say it again, Charlie, you are a bum. Okay, okay then, Johnny. Come on back here and I'll make it up to you. How? Another assignment. This time right out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Yeah? Matter of fact, it's over near an old stamping ground of yours. Lake Mojave? Lake Mojave. Say no more. I'll pack a razor, a clean shirt, all the fishing tackle I can find and be on my way. And a thirty-eight pistol, maybe? You just telephone Ham Pratt over at Lake Mojave Resort to have a room for me and... What was that last crack you slipped in there? Bring along a what? Uh, just just uh, kidding is all, Johnny. Oh, yeah? What kind of an assignment, Charlie? I'll meet you here at L.A. International give you the whole story. Yeah, I think you'd better. <laughs> The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Worldwide Mutual Insurance Company, Los Angeles office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the mixed blessing matter. Expense account item one. 
$199.27 for a cab to Bradley Field, a plane to New York, then a jet to Los Angeles. Thanks to good connections, it was only about 6 p.m. Pacific time when I arrived at L.A. International Airport. True to his word, Charlie Warren was there and waiting. After helping me load my luggage, including the fishing tackle, into a rental car, he led me up to the flight deck restaurant and we ordered cocktails. Your health, Johnny. May we never grow old. Oh, I'll drink to that. Ah, I can use this. Hmm. I'm the little man who's had a busy, busy day. So let's eat, drink, and be merry, Johnny. Oh, tomorrow we may die? What? Or is this big dinner bit just so that you can say the condemned man ate a hearty meal? (laughs) Whatever the son of you... Oh, you mean that crack I made about being sure to bring along a gun? Yes. Honest engine, Johnny. I was only kidding about that. Oh, you were. Honest engine. Oh, you said that. But it got you curious enough to come out here, didn't it? Well, thought of a chance to break up a long, hard winter with a little warm water fishing is what got me out here. Nothing else but. So, if you want to make up for the freezing I took on your company's behalf last time and keep me happy... Johnny, I told you I'd make up for that, and I will. I telephoned your friend Ham Pratt and told him you'd arrive there sometime late tonight. Mm-hmm. He promised to have not only a comfortable motel unit for you, but a boat and 75-horse outboard, complete with electric starter, electromatic drive, a tank full of gas, and a bucket of live bait. Sounds great. The works for as soon as you can get yourself out on the lake. And that, Charlie, my boy, will be at the crack of dawn tomorrow morning. Uh, Johnny, just tell me. Well, isn't the fishing over there supposed to be uh, a lot better in the late afternoon? What is that supposed to mean? Uh, how's about another drink before we order the food, huh? Charlie. Another of the same, Johnny, okay? All right, Charlie, let's have it. <laughs> what? I don't know what you mean. The reason I am not supposed to go fishing tomorrow in spite of all your sweet talk. Did I say that? Well, didn't you? Well, I meant uh, not tomorrow morning is all. Why not? Well, there's just one little thing maybe you ought to sort of take care of first. One little thing? Yeah. Like arson or murder, burglary, embezzlement? One little thing like that? No, sir. What then? We'll just pick up some money over at our branch in uh, Kingman. You know our man over there, Jake Kessler? Know him very well. But don't tell me you're going to pay me off in advance. Well, no, not exactly. But, uh, well, let Jake tell you what it's all about, what the money's for. Well, don't you know? Let him handle it. He's the one that seems to be worried. How much? Oh, about 40000 What? In cash. You know, to pay off a retirement policy. Charlie, what's the hitch? Johnny, all I know is the payment's due. It's been okayed by the company, and for some reason, Jake doesn't want to or can't make it himself. Why not? Well, you know Jake, the old worry ward. Well, sometimes his worries pay off, Charlie. Well, anyhow, after a good night's sleep at Mojave, go on over to Kingman, Arizona, pick up the dough, and deliver it. Then you can spend the rest of the week fishing on expense account. Okay, pal? Sure, sure. Okay. Why not? There's only one trouble with it. Trouble? What do you mean? You know as well as I do, Charlie. It all sounds just a little too easy. Jake Hessler, over there in Kingman, Arizona, is quite a character. He's about 55. Tall, angular, long-legged, well-tanned by the desert sun. His office there on the main street is on the second floor above the Conroy Mercantile. Johnny! Johnny Dollar! Jake, you old son of a... (laughs) Hey, what happened to you? I made a gall-dang fool of myself, Johnny... 
sit down. Well, tell me what happened. After all the ribbon I've took from these natives over the years about the, the clothes I wear. I know. Well, yesterday morning I finally took a dare and tried getting up on top of a horse. Oh. And what happened? <laughs> God darn critter ended up on top of me. Oh, Jim. Busted one ankle, threw a knee out of joint. So I got to be carried up and down those stairs by a couple of the boys at the mercantile, and all in all, I'm a gall dang mess. Can't even drive my own car. Oh, Jake, all I can say is I'm sorry. And that's why I have to send for somebody who could represent the company officially to pay off old man Blessing when he suddenly up and demands the whole thing in one hunk of cash. Did you say Blessing? Yeah. His name's Barney Blessing. Mm-hmm. 41,000 cash. And I'm sure glad you're the one that sent to do it for me, like I asked him to. You, uh, you suppose uh, the company got suspicious too, Johnny? Suspicious of what, Jake? Well, about why, in spite of setting up that policy for him to get paid off something every month after 65 and for as long as he lives, now he wants it all at once. Well, do you think there might be something fishy about it? That name of his uh, doesn't ring a bell? No, I don't think so. You're old enough to remember Prohibition, all the bootlegging and racketeering in those days? Why, sure. Well, Barney Blessing was a gunman back then, but he never got caught. Oh? Then about a year ago, he moved out here to uh, worked out hunk of land the other side of Hackberry. Mm -hmm. Him and a fellow named Harry Higby. And a beat-up old dog named uh, Vicky. Oh, who is this Higby? Just a friend of Barney Blessings? A friend. Not on your life. Hated him. You see, that Higby back in those days, well, they called him the twin. Yeah? He was the reason Barney never got caught. I don't follow you. He was just a, a hanger-on. He wasn't a killer. He, he wasn't of much use to that mob except for one thing. Higby looked so much like Barney Blessing that when Barney was sent out to do a job, then they'd plant Higby someplace where a lot of people that see him would swear that he was Barney. So that he was kind of Barney's alibi. Right. Mm. He was how come they could never pin a thing on Barney. I see. Well, why did he bring Higby along out here? Well, don't you see, Johnny? Blackmail. Ah, yeah, maybe you have something there, Jake. Sure, that Higby knows enough to send him up for life. All he has to do is open his mouth and start singing. So Barney's not only had to keep him around and feed him, but even made him beneficiary of this policy, too. If Barney dies before the policy matures. Right. Tell me, uh, when will Barney be eligible to start collecting on it? Well, that's just a trouble. He's 65 right now. And Johnny... The old coot must have read all the fine print. Why you say that? All of a sudden, now that I'm all uh, busted up and can't get around anywhere, all of a sudden he telephones me from, uh, uh, well, wherever it is he gets to a telephone, with this demand we pay him off in cash, deliver it to him in hand. Mm. That's uh, the way that fine print reads, in hand. But you don't want to pay him off? No. Why not? What's all this all-fired big hurry about all of a sudden? Why this sudden change to wanting the whole thing in one lump sum without letting us know beforehand? Have you seen him and talked to him at all since he moved out here? No, I've never seen him. 
Like a darn fool, I just never got around to it. Never even met him. Mm-hmm. Well, who around here does know him, Jake? Not anybody. He or Higby or whichever it was used to come here to Kingman for groceries at first, but for nigh on, uh, on to a year now, there's been no sign of him. Jake? Yeah. If you've been able to have yourself uh, holed up to this office every day, you could have got out there to Barney Blessings Ranch. Well, uh, so what? Well, so instead you sent for me. Why? Johnny. Johnny, do I have to lay it out to you? Go ahead. Well, you just ought to know by now that I have me a nose for trouble. And when I think of what Barney was once and how he said over the phone that if I showed up at his place to, to give any argument, showed up uh, without the money, well... well Jake, um... you old rascal, I think you pulled your accident on purpose that you're scared. <laughs> Probably for no reason at all. You just want me to stick my neck out for you. I tell you, I got an instinct. Mm. Always have had, and it's always been right. But now, Johnny, if, um, you know, if you just want to duck out of this one and... Duck out? Uh, yeah, stay away from those two ex-mobsters and go over to the lake and do some quiet fishing instead. Okay, well, okay, Jake, just tell me how to get there. By golly, Johnny. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't let me down. Mm. So, now, here. Yeah. Uh, here now. You'll have to take this along with you. That's the $41,000. Yeah, in cash money. Mm. Had the bank deliver it to me just before you got here. I thought that kind of payoff had to come from the main office of a company like yours. I wish it did. But you know worldwide, immediate payment on any claim at any place in the world. That's the slogan. Yep. That's why even a little local office like this one has to come up with it. That's why I can't give Barney Blessing any argument. Well, if I do find any grounds for your wild suspicions, whatever they are... Maybe I will. Now, uh, you listen, Johnny. Yes, Jake. Well, here, uh, here's the receipt and so on, uh, that uh, he'll have to sign. Um, okay. Now, wait a minute now. Is that a copy of the policy itself there? That's right. Well, how about if I borrow it for a little while, Jake? Just long enough to have somebody make a copy of it, hmm? Then you are thinking the way I am, aren't you? Am I? So, here... Just in case, I, uh, well, I had this extra photostat made for you. Good. All right, Jake. Give me some directions and I'll be on my way. Sure. But now, Johnny. Well? Well, like you say, maybe I'm all worried up about nothing at all. Sure you are. But, uh, be careful anyway. Will you, Johnny? Sure. Jake had told me the ranch was near the old mining town of Hackbury. Population about 100. But from Hackbury, I had to take a narrow, crooked, dusty little road some 20 miles further to the foot of the Cottonwood Mountains. Believe me, this was really desolate desert country. But the tiny ranch was like a sort of oasis out there. Five or six acres, I'd say, all of it surrounded by a barbed wire fence, except for the driveway up to the house. Thanks to half a dozen windmills busily pumping water, old Barney had managed to make himself a tidy little farm with vegetable gardens enough to supply all his needs and then some. 
And over in one corner, fenced off by themselves, were a dozen or so beef cattle making the most of a surprisingly green, lush growth of alfalfa. The house sitting there in the middle of the property was a small but well-kept building of concrete block. As I pulled up and stopped, the front door opened just a crack. And then slowly, a man emerged. An old man, weather-beaten, but husky and healthy-looking. As I started toward him, he slowly raised and aimed a high-powered rifle at me. Didn't you see that sign out front there? Says no trespassing? I saw the sign. Well, that's what you're doing, Buster. This is my property. Now get out. Your property, hmm? That's right. Then you're Barney Blessing? That's right. So what? Now you get out. Sure. If you don't care about getting your insurance money. Huh. Well, then I'll uh, wait a minute. Oh, well, that's better. You saying you're that Jake Hessler I talked to on the phone? No. I don't sound like him. Who are you? My name is Dollar. Here now. Oh, watch it, Buster. What? What you reaching for? My credentials. You want to lower that gun and have a look at them? Did you say Dollar? That's right. Johnny Dollar? Right again. You're some kind of detective, ain't you? What you doing here? Well, if you'll put down that gun, I'll tell you. When I'm ready. Okay. Jake Hessler is laid up. He couldn't make it. So I've brought your insurance money. Yeah, my 41 grand? Where is it? Right here, Mr. Blessing. $41,000. Okay, okay. Give it over to me. And then get out of here. Before you sign the papers for it, the receipt and so on? Are you kidding? Okay. Come on inside here. I don't trust you until I get the dough. Now, let me see them papers. Put them here on this table. All right. Here you are. If you're Barney Blessing, just go ahead and sign them. Sure. Why not? Barney... Don't you want to see my identification or something? Make sure who I am? Well, that depends. After you've signed. Here now. Uh, uh, Watch it. As I was about to say here, you can use my pen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're pretty jittery, aren't you, Mr. Blessing? I I don't like strangers around here, see? No, I can see that. Well, are you going to sign? Sure, sure, sure. Only I'd say, I get my money, don't you come any closer. All right, all right. Okay. Now, Barney Blessing. You always have that much trouble signing your own name? What are you talking about? Yeah, okay now? Uh, before you sign those others... I said watch it. I don't like the way you keep reaching inside your coat that way. I don't like the way you keep waving that rifle around. Now, look. What's the matter? Just compare your signature with the one here on the policy. Yeah? Well, what do you expect after all these years? After all these years you've had to practice? What are you talking about? Will you put the gun down for a minute? No, sir. All right, then tell me this. Where's your partner, the man who came out here to live with you? You mean Higby? Harry Higby? That dirty, rotten, blackmailer... What do you want to know for, huh? What's he got to do with this? They called you the twins, didn't they? So what? So much alike that nobody could tell you apart? Certainly nobody out in this country ever knew which was which. Now, now, wait a minute. You saying I ain't Barney Blessing? I said, where is he, this partner of yours? Well? Okay, so I'll tell you. 
dirty, chiseling stoolie. I finally got fed up with him. I, I throwed him out. You did, hmm? Yeah, it cost me a lot, though, but I paid him off and made him get out of here. Okay? Uh, now, now, let me sign the rest of these here papers so you can give me the dough and you can get out. One more thing. Yeah, now what? What about the dog? Huh? Oh, you mean Vicky? Well, whatever her name was. Now, what's that stinking, lousy, flea-bitten hound dog got to do with it? You say that about her after the way you brought her all the way out here from Chicago, was it? Okay, okay, okay. So I'm all upset on account of Vicky died a couple of days ago. I, I had to bury her. Well, you didn't, huh? Well, you don't believe it. Look outside the window there at the back. See that mound over the place where I laid the poor little pooch away? Mister, that mound of freshly turned earth is one of the first things I noticed when I drove in here. You know something? I'd like to see what's really under it. You know something, Dollar? I don't like you. I think you're trying to pull something on me. And me, I won't stand for that. You see this? You think I don't know how to use it? I'm sure you do. Okay. I'll sign all your papers just to make it legal. But in the meantime, you reach inside your pocket and lay down that 41 G's where I can see it. You hear me? Now go ahead. I guess I haven't much choice, have I? You got no choice. Go ahead. Well, how about this instead? Oh, no, you. Shot the gun out of my hand, will you? All right, now, don't make a move. Now, now, now listen, listen. You listen, and don't forget that I'm holding a gun now. Okay. Okay, you win. Well, maybe I got excited. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, let me sit down. I'll sign the rest of the papers. You, you can give me the money and get. I'm afraid not. Not yet. Huh? Not until you've done a little digging for me, outside where that mound of earth is. What's the matter? Don't you believe me? I, I tell you, all you're going to find is the body of that poor little Ricky, the dog. We'll see. Now get going. Okay. Okay, you satisfied now? See, Dollar, it's only what's left of poor old Vicky. Yeah. Yeah, I see. In spite of the size of the grave. Well, Vicky was a big old dog. Well, you satisfied now? No. Go back. What? Looks pretty convincing. Would fool almost anybody, but I think you better dig a little more. What are you... No, no, sir. No, I won't. Oh, I said dig. Now, you go ahead and dig. No, no, I won't do it. I, I showed you Vicky's body. Ain't that enough? It's whatever may be underneath it that I want to see. Now, dig. Now, listen. You, you listen to me. He didn't die soon enough to leave it to you, did he? What? And then you somehow found out he was going to take it all in cash, enough to let him get away from you, out of a country where your blackmailing couldn't touch him anymore. You don't know what you're talking about. You couldn't about. take that, so you killed him. Then you thought that you'd collect instead, that nobody would know the difference, and nobody could prove that you aren't Barney Blessing. Now, listen, Dollar, please. Didn't listen. you know his fingerprints are on file, that when you dig down there to him, all we have to do... Okay, okay. Okay. It's, it's Barney under there. I give up, huh? I give up. But don't you see, Dollar? I... Dig, Mr. Higby. Dig. You knew it, Jake, didn't you? Well, just a hunch, Johnny. And even if it was a right one, I didn't know how I could prove it. But that feeling I had a couple of 
punks like them, and nobody around here could prove which one was really which, and with all that money at stake, well, Johnny, I... <laughs> I just... I just kind of had me a hunch, is all. And Jake, it looks like that instinct, that nose for trouble of yours, is something that you had better hang on to. Now, darn it, because of the call from back in Hartford, I again had to miss out on the fishing. But I'm going to keep trying. You can depend on that. Expense account total, including mileage in the rental car and the trip home, four ninety-seven forty. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a case that could be marked top secret, that blows wide open in more ways than one. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr., music supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Louis Van Ruten as Harry Higby, Cliff Carpenter as Jake Hessler, Maurice Tarplin as Charlie Warren. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Art Hanna speaking. The Mixed Blessing Matter, an episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, from 60 years ago in the winter of 1962. It came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. One of the things I love most about America is the way we often combine different traditions and backgrounds and personalities to come up with something very successful. Take, for example, a banker from Ohio whose family literally came over on the Mayflower and who himself became a Nobel Peace Prize winner and Vice President of the United States. Put him together with a Jewish-American from Brooklyn who gave up a career in the law to become a songwriter, and finally add in an African-American singer from Richmond, Virginia. The result was one of the biggest hit songs of the 1950s, estimated to have sold more than 3.5 million records worldwide. The Ohio man was Charles G. Dawes, who served as vice president under Calvin Coolidge from 1925 to 1929. Mr. Dawes dabbled in music, and in 1911 he composed his Melody in A Major. It's just a tune that I got in my head, he said, so I set it down. It became a popular little waltz at classical recitals, and some 40 years later... That Brooklyn-born songwriter, Carl Sigmund, fiddled with the melody a bit, put a lyric to it, as he had for dozens of hits, including Ebb Tide, What Now, My Love, and the Christmas song, A Marshmallow World. Finally, there was that fellow from Richmond, Tommy Edwards. He was a songwriter himself, who found greater success as a smooth-voiced singer in the 50s. Mr. Edwards recorded the tune in 1951, the same year its composer, Mr. Dawes, passed away. The record made a little noise, as they say in the music business, but the real success was to come seven years later. 
In June of 1958, at what was likely to have been his last recording session for MGM Records, they were going to drop him, Tommy Edwards sang the song again in a new, more rock-and-roll-friendly, four-to-the-bar arrangement conducted by Leroy Holmes. It hit the charts in August, and by September, it was number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It stayed there for six weeks, and Tommy Edwards, born, according to some sources, 100 years ago this week on February 17, 1922, became the first African-American artist to have a number one record on the pop charts. Here is that record from 1958 of Tommy Edwards singing, It's All in the Game. Many a tear has to fall But it's all in the game All in the wonderful game That we know as love You have worked Your future's looking thin, but these things your hearts can run above. Once in a while, you won't call, but it's all in. With a sweet bouquet And he'll kiss your lips And caress your wedding fingertips And your heart For Valentine's Day, a song about love, and one of the greatest oldies in Top 40 radio history, Tommy Edwards' second, and far more successful, recording of Charles Dawes and Carl Sigmund's It's All in the Game. This year marks the centennial of Tommy Edwards, who passed away in 1969, and whose birthday, depending on whom you ask, was a hundred years ago this coming Thursday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Love 
is an ever-present theme on the show and the mind of our Miss Brooks. The object of her affection is the bashful and generally clueless biology teacher Philip Boynton. And there's another romance, that of the teenagers Walter Denton and Harriet Conklin, the daughter of Miss Brooks's nemesis, Principal Osgood Conklin. For the decade that the series was on the radio, and for the four years it was on television, Harriet was portrayed by Gloria McMillan. Sadly, Ms. McMillan passed away last month at the age of 88. Even as we mourn her passing, we recall her always joyous, sprightly, on-air presence that helped to make our Miss Brooks such a stunning success. In the installment we're about to hear, there's more romance than usual going on, and Ms. McMillan's Harriet is happy to help move it along. The episode's sometimes called Mrs. Davis and the Love Triangle, and it was broadcast ten days before Valentine's Day in 1951 by CBS as part of the series Our Miss Brooks. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay, and Palm Olive Shave Creams for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave bring you Our Miss Brooks, transcribed and starring Eve Arden. Once again, for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, like most school teachers, Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, has been exposed to her share of puppy love. I'll say I have. It's getting so I can't look a puppy in the face without flinching. <laughs> but the kids at school are nothing compared to the case I discovered at home between my landlady, Mrs. Davis, and Horace Barlow the school's new Janet, a basement custodian. <laughs> Although she met him a week ago at a school tea, up until Thursday morning at breakfast, she kept denying anything but a passing interest in him. Please, Connie, just because Horace Barlow has been over a few times is no reason for people to jump to conclusions. My goodness, Horace isn't jumping to conclusions. At his age, Horace is lucky if he can limp to conclusions. <laughs> But I've seen you two together, Mrs. Davis. As far as I'm concerned, I think of Horace as just a real nice boy. And he is, too. A real nice 68-year-old boy. <laughs> he happens to be 54, Connie. He told me so himself. I know, Mrs. Davis. And Jack Benny is 39. <laughs> Not that I'm criticizing your friendship. Far from it. I'm delighted that Horace is so genuinely fond of you. Oh, Connie... Horace doesn't even know I'm alive. Well, don't let that worry you. It's hard to tell about him most of the time. <laughs> anyway, I'm simply not interested in anything but the most casual relationship. Heavens, if I were thinking seriously, I'd try to find out something about the man, wouldn't I? Haven't you? Definitely not. I'm not even mildly curious. I haven't the slightest idea where he keeps his $10,000 life insurance policy. <laughs> and I have no knowledge whatsoever of how he got his leg wounded in the Mexican War, for which he gets a $53 a month pension. <laughs> Why, I don't even know in what bank he keeps his $2,619 savings account. Shame on you. You haven't even got his social security number. S-498-265. <laughs> Oh, 
that's Walter Denton. He's driving me to school. Be right there, Walter. Now, is there anything you want me to say to Mr. Barlow for you if I happen to see him at school? Not a thing, Connie. Okay. There's no necessity of even mentioning to him that I'm not busy tonight. I see. And there's no need for any remarks about the cake I'm baking today being too big for one person to finish alone. I'll be as silent as the tomb. And above all, it would be utterly shameless if you were to hear that I don't want to waste the box of cigars I bought yesterday. <laughs> you can trust me implicitly, Mrs. Davis. I won't say a word to Mr. Barlow. I'll just hit him on the head and drag him home. <laughs> I'm glad you picked me up early this morning, Walter. I've got an errand to do for Mrs. Davis before my first class. I'll get you there with the speed of a gazelle, Miss Brooks. <laughs> oh, by the way, how's Mrs. Davis's romance with Mr. Barlow coming along? Oh, have you noticed that, too? I think it's the cutest thing in the world. Mrs. Davis actually has a bad case of puppy love. It is cute, considering she's in her second puppyhood. <laughs> No disrespect intended, you understand. After all, what could be more romantic than two lonely old people encountering the grand passion in the sear and yellow leaf of life? Why, that's absolutely poetic, Walter. The burning desires of youth long past, they look now for the subdued glow of companionship, the warm and simple pleasures that two elderly people in love can share together. I can see them now, soaking their feet in the same pan of Epsom salt. I'll bet you'd like to find romance at that age, Miss Brooks. At the rate I'm going now, I'm counting on it. <laughs> but, Walter, I just assume you don't mention the subject at school. It might be a source of embarrassment to Mr. Barlow. My trap is sealed, Miss Brooks. Now, what's the errand you're going to do for Mrs. Davis this morning? Well, off the record, I'm going to invite Mr. Barlow over to the house tonight. He's been a little backward about asking for a date. I get it. You're Mrs. Davis's John Alden. Now all you got to do is get Mr. Barlow to invite Mrs. Boynton over for you, and you're all set. <laughs> Meetings adjourned. <laughs> Today, aren't you? Hello, Harriet. I've got to deliver a message to the custodian. Have you seen him? Oh, yes. Mr. Barlow just went into his office. Isn't it wonderful, Miss Brooks? I don't know. I've never been in his office. <laughs> I mean about Mr. Barlow and Mrs. Davis. They're crazy about each other. Of course, it's a big secret. Couldn't be a bigger secret if they took out an ad. <laughs> Is there anything more romantic than the mellow romance of old age? Now, please, Harriet. To think of two people finding love at a time of life when others are preparing to pass on. <laughs> two people walking hand in hand in the twilight of life. Yes, there's nothing like a brisk walk before passing on. <laughs> well, I won't keep you any longer. Far be it from me to delay Mrs. Davis's emissary of love. Good luck in your mission, John Alden. Thank you, Priscilla. <laughs> Come in. 
I hope I'm not disturbing you, Mr. Barlow, but there's something I wanted to ask you. Well, then go ahead and ask. <laughs> if you want to get apples, you got to shake the tree. <laughs> now, what is it? It's just this. I was wondering if tonight, that is, if you haven't any other plans, Mrs. Davis isn't doing anything, and I'm sure she'd be pleased if you wanted to drop over. Well, that's right and neighborly. Would uh, you like me to drop over? Of course. I'm sure you and Mrs. Davis will have a lovely evening together. Are you planning on staying in, Miss Brooks? I suppose so, Mr. Barlow, but I'm sure that at your age you don't need any chaperone. You're right about that. Maybe we could send Mrs. Davis to a movie. <laughs> send Mrs. Davis to a movie? Sure. Oh. oh, there's no sense in my trying to hide it any longer. Why, the only reason I've been coming around Mrs. Davis's place is to be near you. Near me? But you, you've been making dates with Mrs. Davis. Well, naturally. You gotta slip the drones a little, honey, if you wanna get next to the queen bee. <laughs> you, Mr. Barlow, are barking up the wrong hive. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I, I simply can't believe it's even happening. I couldn't believe it myself. I just couldn't understand the feeling that swept over me when I first saw you, Miss Brooks. In fact, since that time, I've had my glasses changed twice. <laughs> but it's still the same. I keep asking myself, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Three quarters of it, I wasn't even born. <laughs> Look, Mr. Barlow, there's a... There's a great difference in our ages. Oh, nonsense, Miss Brooks. I just don't believe in age. Well, neither do I. I've been standing it off for years. <laughs> I mean, if you'll think this over for a while, you'll realize that it just couldn't work out. Why not? Is there somebody else playing the piano in your front parlor? <laughs> no, but Mr. Boynton plays the ukulele on my back porch. <laughs> We've been going together for quite a while now. You mean that biology fella? Oh, shucks, he's just an unsophisticated kid. Why, you couldn't warm him up if you stuck a Bunsen burner under him. <laughs> You've been peeking. <laughs> that is, Mr. Boynton's just shy about expressing his feelings. He ain't got no feelings, if you ask me. Leastwise, not like I have, especially since I met you. Why, I just knew today was going to bring some excitement into my life. I got the strangest sensation right after breakfast. Maybe something fell into your gruel. <laughs> There's no two ways about it, sis. I'm smitten. <laughs> well, would it unsmit you if I told you that I was engaged to Mr. Boynton? Engaged? Oh, but he wasn't even over to your place the night I visited Mrs. Davis. He must have been working. If you come over tonight, I'm sure he'll be there. Well, seeing is believing. Well, I'll drop by, Miss Brooks, but I still say when it comes to your bringing me messages from Mrs. Davis, speak for yourself, John Alden. There's no use talking. These man-tailored suits have got to go. <laughs> Brush your teeth with Colgate. Colgate Dental Cream. It cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. While it cleans your teeth. 
Colgate toothpaste. Cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. While it cleans your teeth. Colgate dental cream cleans your breath while it cleans your teeth. And the Colgate way stops tooth decay best. Yes, the Colgate way is the most thoroughly proved and accepted home method of oral hygiene known today. Over two years' research showed brushing teeth right after eating with Colgate dental cream helps stop more decay for more people than ever before reported in dentifrice history. The Colgate way stopped tooth decay best. No other dentifrice, ammoniated or not, offers such conclusive proof. And you should know that Colgate's, while not mentioned by name, was the only toothpaste used in the research on tooth decay recently reported in Reader's Digest. So always follow the Colgate way to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and stop tooth decay best. Brush your teeth with Colgate. Colgate Dental Cream, it cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. What a cleans your teeth. And the Colgate way stops tooth decay best. quite chagrined to find out that Horace Barlow was more interested in me than he was in Mrs. Davis. This was one triangle I was determined would not be eternal, not even overnight. Therefore, at lunchtime, I headed for Mr. Boynton's table in the cafeteria. But just as I got halfway to it... Oh, Mr. Conklin, I'm terribly sorry, sir. You're slipping, Miss Brooks. You only knocked two dishes off my lunch tray today. I guess I didn't watch where I was going. Obviously. When you do, you get the whole tray. (laughs) Well, luckily, nothing happened to your apple pie. The plate is broken, but the pie is intact. Here. Thank you. Even more luckily, nothing seems to have gotten on my clothes. No, sir. I've never seen you look so neat. White carnation and all. I spoke too soon. That's vanilla ice cream. (laughs) This never would have happened, sir, but I'm terribly preoccupied today. This must be preoccupied day at Madison High. I've had nothing but trouble with our new school custodian for the same reason. You mean Mr. Barlow? Yes, yes. He forgets about the furnace. He forgets to fix the pipes. The old goat acts as if he was in love. Maybe he is in love. Mr. Barlow? But who could a 70-year-old codger be in love with? He happens to be 54. Yes, and Jack Benny is 39. (laughs) Horace Barlow in love. At his age, he probably can't tell the difference between a woman and a kangaroo. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Well, if you'll excuse me, I'll be hopping off to lunch. (laughs) No doubt I'll run into you later in the day, Mr. Conklin. It is with that thought in mind that I carry every possible form of accident and hospitalization insurance. (laughs) Good day, Miss Brooks. Good day, Mr. Conklin. He's got a lot of nerve. Just because a person's lived a few more years than some other person. I don't like to interrupt, Miss Brooks, but if you keep talking to yourself, you'll make an eavesdropper out of me. Oh, I'm sorry, Walter. I've had a little shock this morning. You see, I spoke to Horace Barlow a short time ago about making a date with Mrs. Davis. What'd he say? He says he's not interested in Mrs. Davis. He's smitten with somebody else. 
somebody else. But he can't do that to Mrs. Davis. Oh, she's a very sensitive little lady, and she's nuts about him. She'll be terribly hurt. That's what I'm afraid of. He doesn't know when he's well off. I'd like to see the hunk of crow bait he's fallen for. <laughs> now, just a minute, Walter. It so happens that Mr. Barlow thinks he's in love with me. With you? But that's illegal. <laughs> it's unthinkable. It's a... Let's mm. just call it unusual. <laughs> Actually, Walter, I'm extremely worried about the situation. Mrs. Davis and I have been friends for too long to let a thing like this come between us. Well, why don't you just tell old Barlow to go peddle his papers? I did, practically. I even told him I was engaged to Mr. Boynton. That's what I'm worried about. They're both coming over tonight, and I've got to prove it. Well, what's so tough about that? I'm sure Mr. Boynton will cooperate. You are? Sure. For one night. Oh. <laughs> now, the next thing you gotta do is get Mrs. Davis out of the house tonight. Because if she caught you and Mr. Boynton acting as if you were engaged, she'd know something was rotten in Denmark. What a sweet way to put it. But, Walter, how do I get Mrs. Davis out of the house? Well, easy. There's an old bachelor friend of my dad staying at the house for a couple of days, uh, Mr. Gordon. I'm sure he'd like a date with a nice, clean-cut character like Mrs. Davis. And I'll ask her to go out with him as a favor to my folks. What about Mr. Barlow? She expects him tonight. Well, just tell her he couldn't make it. Say his blood pressure hit a new high or something. <laughs> now, you go find Mr. Boynton, and I'll call home and make sure Mr. Gordon's available to act as Davis bait for the evening. <laughs> See you later, Miss Brooks. All right, Walter, and thanks. Me and the night and the music. Da, 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 da. Oh, Mr. Boynton, I've got to talk to you right away. Oh, what's wrong, Miss Brooks? It's about Mrs. Davis. You know, she's got a crush on the school custodian, Mr. Barlow. But unfortunately, he's head over heels in love with somebody else. <laughs> Please, Miss Brooks, don't, don't make me laugh while I'm drinking coffee. Mr. Barlow's an old man. What kind of a shriveled-up prune could he fall for? <laughs> Why does it have to be a prune? For all you know, Mr. Barlow could be crazy about a nice, young, firm, fuzzy peach. <laughs> Besides, he's only 48. He's 70 at least. And not what you'd call in prime condition. Why, his hyperthyroidism is apparent, and his incipient arteriosclerosis masking cardiac decompensation was evident to me after one glance. Good thing you didn't take a second glance. He'd be a goner. <laughs> the truth is, Mr. Boynton, that Mr. Barlow's been coming to our place just so he could be near me. <laughs> If I'd known you were going to get so excited, I'd have worn my raincoat. <laughs> Here, use this napkin. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Brooks, but I, I couldn't help exploding. Do you mean to tell me Mr. Barlow is in love with you? That's right. We hyperthyroids have to stick together. <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton, I know it's an absurd situation, but my only real concern is Mrs. Davis. I've got to discourage Mr. Barlow once and for all, and, you, and you've got to help me. Well, me? What can I do? Well, he's coming over to our place tonight. I invited him this morning on behalf of Mrs. Davis. That's when he told me how he felt about me, and that's when I told him something utterly fantastic. What did you tell him? That you and I were engaged to be married. Here's the napkin. <laughs> Engaged to be married, but 
Miss Brooks, that, that's utterly fantastic. I'm glad I said it first. <laughs> Don't you see, Mr. Boynton, this is very important to someone who's very important to me. Mrs. Davis is just about the best friend I've got. Well, if that's the case, Miss Brooks, I, I guess the least I can do is cooperate. Will you really, Mr. Boynton? Sure. For one night. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy, I'm full. That was a very fine dinner, Miss Brooks. I'm glad you liked it, Mr. Boynton. I opened it all by myself. <laughs> I hope Mr. Gordon took Mrs. Davis to a nice place for dinner. He appears to be a jolly old fellow, doesn't he? Oh, yes, indeed. I noticed he gave you a pretty thorough once-over when he was introduced. You seem to pack quite a wallop for these elderly Joes. That's me, the Cleopatra of the cardiac case. <laughs> but I'd better clear away these dishes. Mr. Barlow will be over any minute. Oh, if that's the case, shouldn't we be getting into the mood? The mood? Oh, yes, we're supposed to be engaged, aren't we? Oh, that mood. <laughs> I'm Mr. Boynton. I can hardly believe my ears. Why? There's no sense making a chore out of this thing. We might as well have some fun doing it. <laughs> fun doing it? Well, certainly. Now, now, let's get started. Get started? Well, the quicker the better. Quicker the better? Of course. Come on. Come on? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, sure. You wash and I'll dry. <laughs> So much for the hopes of Connie Brooks, girl dreamer. <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton, working in the kitchen is the way married people would get into the mood. Engaged couples do their work in the parlor with soft light. Okay, we'll take a big basin of water and do the dishes in the parlor. <laughs> Sometimes I wish you were ugly. Come on, Mr. Boynton, I'll attend to the dishes later. Let's sit down in the living room, hmm? All right, Miss Brooks. It, it isn't too healthy to commence working right after a meal anyway. That must be Mr. Barlow. Just make yourself comfortable. I'll let him in. Well, here I am, Brooksy. Fit as a fiddle and twice as musical. Come in, Mr. Barlow. <laughs> I fixed a little dinner for my fiancé this evening. We've just finished eating it. Follow me, won't you? Your fiancé? Oh, then you mean you actually... Hello, darling. Did you miss me? Miss you? I hated to leave you alone for so many seconds, but I just had to let Mr. Barlow in. You remember Mr. Barlow, don't you, dear? Oh, of course. How are you, Mr. Barlow? Snappies are cooking and twice as full of ginger. <laughs> but let's get to the point. Miss Brooks here told me that you two are engaged. Is that true? Well, yes. Yes, it is. Well, then how come nobody around school heard anything about it? Because we wanted it that way. We've been secretly engaged for over six months now, haven't we, darling? We certainly have, Miss Brooks. <laughs> Miss Brooks? Why does he call you Miss Brooks if you're going to be married? He doesn't like any display of affection in front of company. Let's sit down, shall we? Mr. Barlow, draw up a chair, won't you? And, sweetheart, you draw up a chair and we'll sit down. We... Miss Brooks, I worked out with the basketball team yesterday, and my knees are a little weak. It may be a foul, but I'll never get a shot like this again. <laughs> Sit down, dear. There we are. Comfy? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Seems mighty strange to me. 
Most engaged folks I've seen act a little more demonstrative than you do. But we're mad for each other, aren't we, darling? Yeah, mad. <laughs> you know, dearest, you you haven't kissed me in five minutes. What? I said you haven't kissed me in five minutes. What are we going to do about that? Let's wait another five, huh? <laughs> What's the matter, darling? You want to kiss me, don't you? Uh, maybe it's me, Miss Brooks. No, I'm positive he doesn't want to kiss you. <laughs> oh, you mean he doesn't want to kiss me in your presence? I'm sure that wouldn't stop my great, big, handsome lover boy, would it, dearest? <laughs> Certainly not. Give me your cheek. There. Wow. <laughs> Now, how about one to get me down off the ceiling? Uh, maybe I ought to go. But why, Mr. Barlow? You just got here. I know, but won't I be interrupting something? Only if you go. I mean, stick around a little while longer. I'll see who it is. Don't move, either of you. Sorry I had to disturb you, Connie, but I forgot my key again. Mrs. Davis, what are you doing home so early? Here, let me help you off with your coat and eyeglasses. Mr. Gordon showed me the most wonderful time, Connie. But he has a business appointment first thing in the morning, so we had to cut our date a bit short. Oh, uh, who's that in the living room? That's Mr. Boynton. Oh, I see. And who's the man in the other chair? That's Mr. Boynton, too. He's awfully restless tonight. <laughs> oh, now I see who that is. It's Mr. Barlow. But you told me he wasn't coming over tonight. He must have changed his mind. Listen, Mrs. Davis, when two people have a beautiful friendship, they've got to do everything in their power to keep it from breaking up, right? Mm. Let's talk later, dear. I've got to get these shoes off at once. Mr. Gordon just danced my tootsies into a stupor. He's a wonderful man, Connie. Uh, that's why I want you to do me a little favor. A favor? Yes, when you go back into the living room. What do you want me to do, Mrs. Davis? Brush off that other old creep for me, will you? <laughs> Mr. Barlow? Yes. I haven't the heart to hurt his feelings. Well, it'll save a lot of explanations, I guess. But I know I'm going to get two birds with one stone. What do you mean, Connie? As soon as the old duck is gone, my little lovebird will take off like a wounded pelican. <laughs> returns in just a moment, but first... The case of the close scrape featuring John W. Baker, Justice of the Peace. Here's what Mr. Baker told us. Listen. Here's exactly what happened. Shaving was just one close scrape after another for me, and then I discovered palm olive lather shave cream and a new different way to shave. Palm olive's oceans of rich, thick lather ended my worries about scrapes, burns, and nicks. Why, even in cold or hard water, that palm olive lather way is super smooth, Super comfortable. Take John W. Baker's advice, men. The new palm olive lather way gets beards really soft. And it provides a protective film that actually floats your razor's cutting edge. You get a clean, close shave every time without worry about scraping or nicking, even in cold or hard water. John W. Baker and 1,200 other men tested palm olive lather cream following package directions. And three out of four reported smoother, more comfortable shaves the Palmolive Shave Cream way, no matter how they shaved before. 
Better get Palmolive Lather Shave Cream. Remember, even in cold or hard water, the Palmolive Lather Way means smoother, more comfortable shaves. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I told Mr. Barlow that Mrs. Davis had returned home with a bad headache, and he left the house after threatening to call her up very soon. Then, as I was about to barricade the door against Mr. Boynton's next move, he addressed me. Well, I'm sorry Mrs. Davis doesn't feel well, Miss Brooks. Is she lying down in her room? Yes, she is, Mr. Boynton. Well, that leaves just the two of us, doesn't it? Yes, but don't be nervous. It's much too early for you to think of leaving. Well, I'm not thinking of leaving, Miss Brooks. You and I still have plenty of unfinished business to attend to. Unfinished business? Well, certainly. You and I? That's right. After all, somebody's got to do those dinner dishes. Suppose you wash and I'll dry. <laughs> Better yet, you wash and dry. I've got another engagement. Oh, another engagement? Sure. If I hurry, I can catch Mr. Barlow before he gets on the bus. <laughs> This is Vern Smith reminding you to tune in next week to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Palmolive Shave Creams for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written by Al Lewis with the music of Wilbur Hatch. Ladies... Now, with new improved Vell, V-E-L, you can save 90% of dishwashing work. Just soak dishes in Vell suds a while. Dishes and glassware will soak sparkling clean. No washing, no wiping, no scouring with Vell. Only the stickiest dishes need just the touch of a cloth. Rinse, and they'll gleam without wiping. Soak pots and pans in Vell suds, too. And most of them will get shiny clean without scouring. What's more, Vell is extra mild to hands. So get new Vell. Save 90% of dishwashing work. If you like mysteries that are as full of chuckles as chills, be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. North every Tuesday over this same network. Don't miss the exciting and laughable adventures of these amateur detectives. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This program was transcribed. Stay tuned now for Jack Benny. This is CBS, where our Miss Brooks holds her classes every Sunday, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Eve Arden, as the love-struck Our Miss Brooks, from February 4th, 1951, and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Tonight's Gunsmoke episode is appropriate for Valentine's Day, and it also offers a clinic in radio acting. Listen to how Georgia Ellis and the actor playing Dean Murdoch, we think it's Lawrence Dobkin, manage to define their delicate relationship with only their voices and relatively few words of the script. And speaking of clinics, in a time when vaccination is in the news almost daily, we'll hear a reference to the smallpox vaccine, which was in widespread use by the 1870s when Gunsmoke is set, and which, a century later, 
had eradicated the disease altogether. The episode's called Kitty Love, and it comes from just after Valentine's Day in 1961 and the CBS series Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Go get the horse's saddle, Chester. I'll meet you at the stable in a few minutes, huh? Maybe I ought to stay with you while you tell her. I might be of some help if she starts throwing things. Don't worry about Kitty. She'll understand, all right. I wouldn't count on her, Mr. Dillon. She's been looking forward to this sociable for weeks. Some things can't be helped, Chester. The law comes before town socials. Kitty knows that as well as I do. Yes, sir. Well, good luck. Uh, If I'm not there by the time you're ready, you bring the horses back here to the long branch, huh? Yes, sir, I will. All right. Hello, Sam. Yeah, Marshal. Where's Miss Kitty? She's back in the office. Oh, thanks. Come in. Hello, Kitty. Oh, Matt. You're early. <laughs> yeah, I, uh... I came by to tell you that uh, I won't be able to go with you after all. Oh? Uh, yeah, you see, I just got a telegram from the sheriff in Springville. I got to go over there and pick up a prisoner and bring him back here for trial. And you're leaving right now? Uh, well, yeah, Chester's getting our horses. Well, couldn't it wait for three hours? Well, it's a two-day ride up there, Kitty. Judge Blunt will be in Dodge for the trial on Friday, and I'd be cutting it pretty close as it is. You understand that, don't you? Oh, of course. Doesn't matter. There'll be another social next year. Yeah. Besides, I'm not too sure I like this new dress I bought anyway. Oh, yeah. That's very pretty. I'm glad you like it. Uh, Kitty, I know you've been looking forward to this. Just because I can't take you is no reason that you, you shouldn't go. You know, there are plenty of fellows who'd be more than happy to take you. Oh, you're right, Matt. Shouldn't be any trouble at all to find two or three escorts in the next half hour. Well, sure. I'm sorry, Kitty. I'll see you when I get back, huh? So long. So long, Matt. I hope you have a real nice trip. Well, if I'd have been in town yesterday, Kitty, I would have taken you to the social. <laughs> That's sweet of you, Doc, but uh, I don't think I'd have gone anyway. Matt sort of took the wind out of me. Nah, but Kitty never depend on a marshal. Or a doctor, either, <laughs> when it comes to social affairs. 
I suppose I should have resigned myself to that by this time, but it, it hurts all the same. Sometimes I think I'd be better off if I got out of this town. Maybe you went to San Francisco. San Francisco? Oh, no, now, Kitty. No, you'll feel different when Matt gets back. Everything will be the same again. Oh, yeah. That's one thing I can count on. Everything will always be the same. <clears throat> the Arkansas is just over there, Kitty. Maybe we'd better water the horse and head back to Dodge. You getting hungry, Doc? Oh, I won't have any trouble eating a good-sized breakfast. Oh, but more important, I have to be back at the office. Mrs. Ketchum is bringing her kids in this morning. Oh, six of them? All six of them. I'm going to give them their smallpox vaccinations. Uh, Doc, hey, look. Uh, uh, is that a man lying over there? Uh, uh, yes. There's something wrong. He must be hurt. Here, I'll, I'll give you a hand, yeah. Kitty. Yeah. What's the matter, mister? I don't know how This man needs help, Kitty. He's lost a lot of blood. What's wrong with him? He's been shot. He needs help bad. Well, what can you do for him uh, way out here? The best thing would be to get him in the Dodge. But I don't think he'd make it. Um. Uh, Rudd Stewart's place isn't far from here. Yes, you're right, Kitty. We'd better try to get him there. You've been a big help, Rudd. I appreciate you letting us bring this man in here. Yeah, that's the least I could do, Doc, considering what you've done. That's one thing I don't think I could ever do. Take a bullet out of a man. Well, I'm just thankful we got it out in time. You think he'll live, huh? We should. It's up to him now. Wonder who he is. Doc. Huh? I think he's coming out of it. Oh, well, don't. Hey, just lie easy, mister. What? Who are you? I'm Doc Adams from Dodds. How'd I get here? Well, we found you out in the prairie and brought you here. Oh. Where's my horse? I put him out in the barn, young fella. Uh, my, my saddlebags. Where's my saddlebags? No, no, no. Lie back there. Uh, you can't be staring around. You, you'll have to I take it easy for a while. I've got a saddlebag. Well, where is it, Red? In the barn. Hey, mister, will you please bring it to me? All right, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get it. Please. Yes. What's your name, mister? Murdoch. Dean Murdoch. How'd you get that bullet in there? Well, hey, how long do I have to be in this bed? Well, that all depends on how well you take care of yourself. It's up to you. You gonna tell us about the bullet, mister? Yeah. Someone tried to rob me. Last night, I was heading for Dodge. Where's my gun? No, no, no. Well, it's right over there on the chair. You must be carrying something mighty important in that saddlebag. My, my money, my pay money. I just left a trail herd, Abilene. When's that old man coming back? Just a minute. Uh, stop worrying. You, you got to get some rest. You understand? Yeah. 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 Uh, Kitty. Yeah. You believe him, Doc? Oh, I don't know why not. He seems like a nice enough fellow. Yeah. You really think you'll be all right? It'll take a few days, though. 
I should get him into the office, but he can't be moved until tomorrow, at least. But he'll have to have proper care today. Doc. Yeah? I'm a pretty good nurse when I have to be. Oh, no, no. This isn't your responsibility. Well, it's just as much mine as it is yours. You can't stay. Mrs. Ketchum's bringing her kids in. Remember? Oh, no, no. I, I, I'm not leaving you here. Uh, Rudd can take care of me. You can't depend on Rudd. He's too feeble. I'll, I'll stay here today. Oh, well, I, I don't know. I, I suppose it'll be all right if I... But I'll come back this evening and see how he's doing. And then I'll take you back to Doc. All right, Doc. And don't you worry about a thing. When's the last time you used your flash camera? Back around the holidays? Well, before another big event comes up in your house, why not take the camera down from the shelf and try it out? This is one good way to make sure your camera's batteries are still working. If they're not working or they're weak, then hurry. Take advantage of your Sylvania dealer's great offer now. He'll give you free a Bright Star pen light photo flash battery with each pack of Sylvania blue dot flash bulbs you buy. That's a 20 cent value free. While you're at your dealer's, why not stock up on several packs of blue dots along with several free batteries? That way you'll always have both on hand, ready and waiting for any picture-taking occasion. But don't delay. This offer is good for a limited time only. So, anywhere Sylvania photo supplies are sold at your drugstore, supermarket, photo supply store, anywhere, ask for Sylvania Blue Dot Flash Bulbs, the world's largest selling brand. And you'll receive a Bright Star Photo Flash battery with each and every pack you buy. Get several packs today. You feel like some more soup, Dean? Yeah, I guess. Uh, here. I'll hold a spoon for you. Ah, there. That ain't bad. Well, this will bring you back your strength quicker than anything else. Oh, I feel better already. You know, that sleep you had brought the color back to your face. <laughs> Hey, now, just why would a big-time saloon owner spend her whole day nursing a saddle bum like me? Oh, I haven't taken the time to figure out the reason why. Eh? Well, I'd say I'm pretty lucky. <laughs> Where are you from, Dean? Down Texas. Used to be with the Rangers down there. Why'd you leave? Oh, didn't want to be a lawman the rest of my life. Too many regulations, too much responsibility. So I hear... <laughs> So I resigned and joined a trail herd going north and left them in Abilene, and, and here I am. You said you were headed for Dodge. You going to settle there? No. No, just going through on my way to California. California? Yeah. You ever been there? Yeah, once. Long time ago. Hey, Kitty, you, you got ties in Dodge? Well, there's the Long Branch. Yeah. What else? Or is it who else? Oh, you're getting nosy. No, just, uh, just call it interested. And I don't meet many people I'm interested in. Here, eat your soup. Thanks. No, I, I ought to be well enough to go on another week. Now, that ought to give you enough time to sell that Long Branch and then... 
You can come along to California with me. How about that? Don't tempt me. No, with your money and my money, you can buy us a whole stack of long branches in San Francisco. Where'd you get all your money anyway? Oh, I had a good bit saved up before I joined that trail herd. And then with my pay money from it, that'd give me a nice stake. If you were really smart, you'd put that money in a bank instead of no. carrying it around in your saddle. Ain't heard of a bank. bank yet was safe. I want that money where I can see it. Oh, Miss Kitty, there's a man riding up out front. Who is it? I don't know. What's he look like? Don't look like anybody I know from Dodge. He, he riding a pinta? Yeah, as a matter of fact, he is. Do you know him, Dean? Yeah, that's the man that shot me last night. Huh? I gotta get out of now here. Now, you wait a minute. You're in no shape this to go anywhere. This could be trouble for you and Rudd, Kitty. He knows I have this money. Dean, please lie down and listen to me. No. Now, Rudd can go out and tell him there's no one here. He'll believe Rudd. There won't be any trouble. That's right. I, I can tell him. I'll go out and meet him. Gurry. Yes, ma'am. Kitty, you don't know this. Quiet. Howdy. Hello. This your place? That's right. What do you want? Looking for a friend of mine. He ain't here. He left a pretty good trail leads to this place. Ain't nobody here besides me. When's the last time you looked in your barn? Ain't nobody down there either. You wouldn't mind if I seen for myself, would you? Ain't no use. You can take my word for it. I was just down there a bit ago. Who's in that house? Uh, nobody. Well, I just saw something move in there. You're lying, old man. No, 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 Ace. No, no, no. Uh, that, that's my wife you saw. Well, you said there was nobody else here. Uh, and I meant uh, besides her. You turn around. Uh, uh, no. You turn around and lead the way. <laughs> Get that gun out of my bag. You do as I say, old man, or I'll kill you. All right. All right. See? Ain't nobody here. Where's that door lead to? Just a bedroom. All right, Dean. If you're in there, come out. Don't try anything or I'll kill the old man. All right. We're coming in. Move. Ah, open it. Don't do it, Rod. Drop the gun, mister. Get your hands up. Now, look. Drop the gun, I said. All right. Pick it up, Rod. Now, you get out of here, mister, or I'll kill you. He's in there, ain't he? You're hiding. Go on! Get out! I don't think you got the nerve to shoot me. Don't try me, mister. Get out of the way, Kitty! Dean! You killed him. Dean, you didn't have to do that. He was going to leave. You don't know what he'd have done, Kitty. Well, uh, for a man flat on the back, you sure got well in a hurry. I owed him them bullets. Or at least now my money's safe. We're going to have a clear trail to California now, Kitty, oh, you and me. You're losing your mind. Come on, Rod. Let's get him back to bed. Do you see speed laws and other regulations as restrictive? Well, that could be more infantile than believing one can prove his superiority by ignoring a stoplight. Unfortunately, too many drivers on the road subscribe to that kind of emotional outlook. The result is tragic. Almost 85% of all traffic accidents in America are caused by careless, childish driving. 
We hope sincerely that your attitudes are adult. We hope you know our traffic laws and the people who enforce them are there to help save your life. When did you get back? A few minutes ago. Oh, we had a little excitement while you were gone. Yeah, so I hear Moss Grimmick was telling us something about it down at the stable. Thought I'd better come over here and get the full story. Well, Kitty should be the one to tell you. She was right in the middle of it. Well, Moss said I'd find her up here. No, no, no. She's not here right now, but she usually is. You see, that Dean Murdoch fella is in the next room then. Kitty's been watching over him like a schoolgirl with a lame kitten. She has? Yeah. Well, how's this Murdoch doing? Oh, fine, fine. So all I can do is keep him in bed. Ordinarily, a man as bad off as he was when we found him would be laid up for a couple of weeks, but <laughs> not him. And this is only the fourth day. What'd you do with the man he killed out there? Well, we buried him at Rudd's place. I got out there not long after it happened, and poor old Rudd, he was struggling to dig a grave, so, so I helped him. I knew that you'd want to know all about him, so I wrote down a full description. Yeah, let me see it. Yeah, it's on the desk, along with my coroner's report. Yeah. When'd you bring Murdoch in the Dodge, Doc? Well, not until the next morning. I didn't want to move him that day, and it's a good thing I didn't, too. He, he started to run a bad fever, so Kitty and I spent the night at Rudd's place. And you should have seen her, Matt. She, she was up most of the night, keeping wet cloths on his forehead, and if you ever need a good nurse, you know where to get one. Doc, this description fits the man I was supposed to pick up in Springville. What? Yeah, his name is Blade Grant. By the time I got there, he'd broken jail. Well, I'll... You mind if I go in and talk to Murdoch? No, no come on. Dean, this is Marshal Dillon. He wants to talk to you. Oh, hello. Dean, didn't know this town was big enough to have a marshal. Oh, now, don't tell me Kitty hasn't told you about Marshal Dillon. No, she didn't. Well, huh, well, I'll be in the other room if you need me. Thanks, sir. Dean, how well did you know Blade Grant? Who? Blade Grant, the man you killed at Rudd's place. Oh, was that his name? I'm pretty sure of it. What did you know about him? Nothing. Well, Blade Grant and his partner robbed the bank in Springville. The sheriff stopped Grant and jailed him, but the partner got away with the money. Now, five days ago, the partner came back, killed the sheriff, and let Grant out of jail. Well, Marshal, I don't know nothing about it. I just it. got in from Springville. I was supposed to bring Grant back here for trial. Well, all I know is, Marshal, he's a man tried to rob me, if it's the same one. Now, they tell me you keep your money in that saddlebag, huh? That's right. If you don't mind, I think I'll take a look. Chester! Wait a minute. Sure, Chester. Well, I, I seen you from across the street. Well, I didn't know you were back. Yeah, we rode in just a little bit ago. Where's Matt? He went up to Doc's office. Well, I was just going there myself. Oh, well, I'll walk with you. Sure. Hey, we heard all about what happened to you out at Rudd's place. That sure was something. Well, I'll never forget it. How was your trip? <laughs> Long, dusty, and all for nothing. Gunshots. Sound like they come from Doc's office. Let's go. Matt. Hello, Kitty. What happened, Mr. Dillon? I had to shoot a man in there, Chester. Dean. Oh, Dean. Kitty, wait. He's dead. No. Matt, 
Maybe you better tell Kitty what happened. Yeah. Maybe you better. Well, Kitty, Dean Murdoch had a partner, Blade Grant, the man he killed out at Rudd's. They robbed a bank up in Springville. Dean? The sheriff caught Grant, but Dean got away. And then he came back and broke Grant out of jail and killed the sheriff. I can't believe that. Well, that's true. When he took Grant to the place where he hid the money, Grant tried to take all the money and shot Dean in the process. Dean got away, and you know the rest. He told me that just before he died. But he wasn't that kind of a man. The bank money was marked, Kitty. It's in there if you want to see it. Oh. Why'd you have to kill him? Because he drew first, Kitty. When he knew I had him dead to rights. I'm sorry it happened the way it did. I understand how you felt about him. There's no reason for you to be sorry, Matt. It's your job, I guess. Part of your rotten job. If you'll excuse me, I think I'd better get back to the Long Branch. Kitty, I... Being Saturday and all. Uh, Kitty... Could I walk you back, Miss Kitty? Thank you, Chester. Oh, Doc, what do you think? Well, she took it a lot better than I thought she would. Why don't we take care of things here and then... Uh... Going down to the Long Branch. Back here, you drink, huh? Yeah. I think she'd like that. This is Dennis James to make a point about reliable, effective Kellogg's All Brand. Repeat after me, please. What do you want when you need brand? What do you want when you need brand? Reliability. Reliability. Now, what do you get in Kellogg's All Brand? What do you get in Kellogg's All Brand? Reliability. Right. There's nothing like the reliable Kellogg way to get the effectiveness you want from brand. Kellogg's All Brand is the real Battle Creek formula with more of the vital brand bulk to help you keep regular. Low in calories and mighty appetizing. That's Kellogg's All Brand. And take advantage of the special rose bush offer now on the package. Famous queen of the garden rose bushes, six formally patented varieties, every one a beauty, at just a fraction of their usual cost. Yours for only 50 cents a bush when you include a box top from reliable, effective Kellogg's All Brand. Gunsmoke, produced and directed in Hollywood by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Frank Ferris, with editorial supervision by John Meston. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, John Daner, and Ralph Moody. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. This is George Walsh inviting you to join us again next week when CBS Radio presents another story on Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. Gunsmoke, the episode called Kitty Love from February 19th, 1961. 
You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. We're sending you our best Valentine's Day wishes, and you can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and please visit our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. Okay, we plead guilty. Sometimes, in anticipation of Valentine's Day, we've been known to play Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart's My Funny Valentine from Babes in Arms, a classic song that celebrates its 85th anniversary this year. But as she was searching for an old-time radio performance of that song, Jill came upon another great romantic ballad, and she hit a nerve with me. For many years in the 1980s, I was lucky enough to work very closely with the singer Margaret Whiting. She was a recording star and a radio and television star, but she held something of a unique position among popular singers. Her father, Richard Whiting, was one of the great American songwriters, a mentor and close friend to George Gershwin, a colleague of Jerome Kern, Dorothy Fields, and many others. He was responsible for hits like On the Good Chip Lollipop and She's Funny That Way. And his collaborators included Oscar Hammerstein, Gus Kahn, Walter Donaldson, and Johnny Mercer, whom Margaret called Uncle Johnny. Oh, with a pedigree like that, you can imagine why her singing produced definitive versions of some of the greatest American popular songs. One of Margaret Whiting's regular radio gigs was on the band leader and singer Bob Crosby's show, Club 15, for five and a half years, beginning in 1947. Happily for us, co-producer Jill discovered this Valentine gem, Margaret in a perfect rendition of George and Ira Gershwin's Someone to Watch Over Me. It appears in this excerpt of the October 14, 1947 edition of the CBS series, Club 15. Welcome to Bob Crosby's Club 15. 15 minutes of the best in popular music. Starring the Andrews Sisters, Margaret Whiting with the modern airs, Jerry Gray and his orchestra. And here's the head man of Club 15, Bob Crosby. Hi, everybody. Hello, this is Bob Crosby saying welcome to our ever-loving Club 15 and urging all you neighbors to grab your caps and get your dusters and come along with Margaret Whiting, the modern airs, and me. Maggie sings, George Gershwin, someone to watch over me. That love is blind Still we're often told Seek and ye shall find So I'm going To seek a certain land I've had In mind Looking everywhere Haven't found him yet He's the big affair I cannot forget Only man I ever think of with regret 
a somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that he turns out to be someone to watch over me. I'm a little lamb who's lost in the wood. I know I could always be good to one who'll watch over me. Although he may not be the man son. Tell him, please, to put on some speed and follow my lead. Oh, how I need someone to watch over me. Things that I need someone to watch over me. Just in time for Valentine's Day tomorrow, the Gershwin Brothers' beautiful "Someone to Watch Over Me," sung by Margaret Whiting, Maggie as she was known, on Bob Crosby's Club 15 in the autumn of 1947. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Love and marriage, Sammy Kahn's lyric tells us, go together like a horse and carriage. Well, sometimes they're more like a train wreck. Witness the couple in tonight's Dragnet episode about a relationship gone wrong. It's called the Big Streetcar, and it comes from April third, nineteen fifty-two, NBC, and the series Dragnet. <laughs> story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A man is shot down in the street of a residential neighborhood. He's critically wounded. You don't know who the assailant is. You don't know where he is. Your job, get him. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next thirty minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files, from beginning to end, from crime to punishment. Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. January twentieth was mild in Los Angeles, 
We're working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ed Jacobs. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from dinner, and it was 9.57 p.m. when I got back to the city hall, room 42. Homicide detail. All right, make it in time? No, they were closed up. Oh, that's too bad. Where'd you eat? Well, that cafeteria down the street was terrible. Nothing at all, huh? Well, I figured I'd be safe with a corned beef hash. Even that wasn't much soggy, you know. Probably standing all day. That's too bad. I asked Johnny if he'd stay open a couple of minutes late. Told him you were coming right over. The place was closed tight when I got there. I couldn't raise any money. Tough luck. Sharp ribs are really good tonight. Some great pie, too. Boysenberry. Best I had anywhere. Mm-hmm. Say, you got any of those bicarb pills in your locker? I could sure use one. I'm afraid not. Gave the last one to Gene Bechtel tonight. Uh-oh. He ate at the cafeteria, too. Hiya. Oh, hi, hello. What do you say? Any phone calls for me yet? Muriel down at staff's office called. That run you asked for, they got it ready. It was the only call, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. What is it, Al? Something wrong? No, why? You've been moping around like you lost your best friend. What's the matter? You mad at the world? No, just my in-laws. Wife had her father and mother over for lunch today. The old man's getting to be a real pain in the neck. Don't get along with him, huh? I keep trying to. Doesn't seem to do much good. All he can think of is money. It's all he can talk about. Why let it bother you? My in-laws have been talking about it for years. Forget it. He won't let you. The minute he puts his foot inside the front door, it's the first thing you hear. Crusty old guy. That pipe he smokes enough to knock you over. Why don't you duck out when they come over? Tell him you got a call. You have to go to work. Yeah, the wife's onto that one. She makes me hang around. Keeps telling me your father and mother like me. You never know it. The old guy's a real tyrant. Uh-huh. See, the wife comes from a big family. Every time I see her old man, he has to make a point of telling me how smart his other sons-in-law are. How much dough they're making. Yeah, same. Yeah, same routine every time. One of his daughters married a carpenter. He's making $20 a day. One of them married a hod carrier. He's making $25 a day. Always ends up asking me how much I'm making. Why don't you tell him it's none of his business? I did today. That's what started the argument. I walked out. Crusty old guy. Yeah. Well, I get it. Homicide, Friday. Yes, sir. Where? Mm-hmm. Would you repeat? Yes, sir, I have it. Fine, thank you. Yes, sir, right away. Shooting. Kirkman near Alpine. Let me grab my coat. No details? Man down on the sidewalk. Apparently hurt bad. Neighbor said it was a family fight. Come on, we better hustle it out. Let's go. That's one good thing about this job. What do you mean? Trouble. You don't know what it is to hear about other people's. Sergeant Al Chambra, Ed and I drove out to the scene of the shooting. Code 3, red light and siren. We located the victim lying on the sidewalk approximately 50 feet from the intersection of Kirkman Avenue and Alpine Street. He was a dark-haired man, looked to be in his early 40s, tan complexion well-built. He'd been shot several times in the chest, once in the shoulder. He appeared to be unconscious. A handful of curious neighbors were standing by. One of them, a short, balding man, identified himself as Ernest Whitley. He said he was the victim's next-door neighbor. What's the man's name, Mr. Whitley? Wally Radford lives right next door to me. Been my neighbor for years. Where do you live? Uh, this apartment court right here. I live in the cottage next to the end one there, number eight. Uh, Wally lives in number nine. Uh, one right in the end there, facing us. Yeah. yeah, what do you know about the shooting, Mr. Whitley? Well, I didn't have anything to do with it. I was watching television with the wife. I heard the shots outside. You can ask the wife, she'll tell you. You heard the shots outside of Radford's cottage, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Where's the ambulance? Why don't they come? They've been notified. They're on the way. Well, who did the shooting, Whitley? Would you know that? Well, not for sure. We were watching television, like I said, when I heard the shots. Wife and I. Uh, first, I heard the shots, and then I heard somebody yell. I thought it was some high school kids in a hot rod or something. You know, horsing around outside. Wife told me to get up and take a look anyway, so I did. Uh-huh. On the way to the door, I heard another shot, and somebody yelled out again like they were hurt. Must have been six or seven shots anyway. Just as I opened the door, I saw Wally go running past. 
I didn't know what was coming off. He ran right out toward the street here. Weaving back and forth. Looked like he'd had a couple of drinks. I didn't know what it was. You didn't see the actual shooting? You didn't see anyone with a gun? Well, no. The only one I saw was Wally. He ran right by me, holding his hands up to his chest. I yelled to him, but he didn't stop. I didn't know if he was drunk or what. When he got out here to the sidewalk, I saw him fall down. I went after him. It was terrible. Say, uh, either one of you got a smoke? Yeah, sure. Look, I'm still shaking like a leaf. There you go. Swell. Thank you. Want a light? Yeah, please. Mm. Thanks. You're welcome. Was Radford still conscious when you reached him, do you know? Just about, yeah. I don't know how many times he was shot. He was rolling around on the ground. Pain was terrible. The whole front of his shirt was all stained. I yelled to Mike Desmond, one of the other neighbors. He called you fellas. Did Radford say anything to you? How it happened? He kept moaning about the pain. That made me sick. It was a relief when he passed out. Mm-hmm. Did he tell you how it happened? Yeah, his wife. I figured that was it when I saw what was wrong with him. He told you his wife shot him? Well, they had a big fight today, Wally and his wife. Started this afternoon, been going on all day, all night, yelling at each other, throwing things around. I never expected this, though. Something must have snapped. She must be out of her mind. Where's his wife now? I don't know. She's still back in their cottage, I guess. I've been here since the shooting. I didn't see her leave. Joe? Yeah. We got our hands full. Now, what do you got? Just talking to one of the neighbor women back in the court here. She said a Mrs. Radford phoned her about five minutes ago. Identified herself as the victim's wife. Cottage number nine. What did Mrs. Radford want with the neighbor? She said she was giving fair warning. She wanted her to pass the word along. What do you mean? Claims she's going to kill anybody that comes after her. p.m. The ambulance arrived and the attendants administered first aid to the victim of the shooting, Wallace Radford. Before he was rushed to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital for further treatment, Radford regained consciousness long enough to confirm the fact that it was his wife who shot him. That was about all he could tell us before the sedatives took effect. The two officers and two of the radio cars which were standing by were detailed to keep the crowd away from the apartment court where the shooting took place, in particular Cottage 9, where the Radfords lived. The blinds were drawn in the house. There were no lights showing. We called the Radford Cottage on the phone, but there was no answer. Al, Shambra, and Ed circled around and back for a closer look at the place. I continued interviewing the Radford's next-door neighbor, Ernest Whitley. I guess I should have known it had come to this someday, the way they've been fighting lately, Wally and his wife. They've been doing nothing but wrangling, day in, day out. Well, you any idea where Mrs. Radford got the gun? She must have used Wally's, I guess. Don't know where else she'd get her hands on one. He keeps a gun in the house, does he? Yeah, as long as I've known him, he has. Thirty-eight automatic. I don't know the make, though. Do you happen to know if Mrs. Radford was used to handling a gun? No, a typical woman. I remember Wally and Stella were over at cards one night. Stella, that's Mrs. Radford. Yeah, I, know. I don't know how it came up, but Wally and Stella started arguing about him keeping a gun in the house. Stella didn't like it a bit, said she was afraid of guns. Didn't even like to have him around. I'm surprised she even knew how to pull the trigger. You said the Radfords had a big fight today. What was it about? Do you happen to know? Same old thing, I guess. Stella was always accusing Wally of running around with other women, running around town drinking. As far as I know, it wasn't true. Matter of fact, it was just the opposite. If anybody was on the town, it was Stella. I happen to know at least one guy she was making eyes at. Oh, here's your friend. Hi, what's it look like? Not good. House is pitch dark. Can't hear anyone moving around inside. Won't be easy to get her out of there, Joe, the way the cottage is situated. Why, what's the problem? Well, the rear of the house backs up against that hill there. Yeah. There's a small space between the end of the house and the hill. No back door, just windows. One of them's open a few inches. You mean the front door's the only way in the place, huh? No, there's a side door on the left of the house there, left-hand side. That's yeah, a kitchen door, Sergeant. Leads right into the kitchen. Just like our place. All the cottages are laid out the same. The living room's just inside the front door, then, huh? Yeah, that's right. The bedroom's in the right rear, kitchen in the left rear. A small bathroom leading off the bedroom leads to the left. She won't come out peaceably. How about a tear gas shell? That ought to bring her out. Well, I don't know if we'll need it, Al. Might be a waste of time. Whitley here was just telling me Mrs. Radford isn't familiar with guns. 
You think she know how to reload the automatic with one? No, sir. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't. I don't even know if Wally had another clip of shells around the house. Even if he did, Stella wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, how about the clip that's already in the gun? Good chance she's got a couple of shells left. She fired more than half a dozen of them. I know that. She must have gone crazy. There were at least seven or eight shots. I well, just about emptying the gun. How about it? You want to try rushing the place? It's good. Cool. Okay me. All right, you better stay out here for the time being, Mr. Whitley. Might mm -hmm. be some shooting. You know if you taking any chances. Yes, sir. Sure. Okay, Sergeant. Um, I'll be right back here if you want me. Thank you very much. All right, let's try it. How do you want to handle it? Why don't you and Al take the side door? I'll go in the front. Mm -hmm. Want to see if we can get a rise out of her first? Yeah. Maybe she'll give it up without a fight. I'll call out to her a couple of times first. If there's no answer, we'll rush the place. Okay. Now, let's make it all together, huh? Just wait for a signal. I'll call it out. All right. Here. Okay. That's it. Side door just behind the shrub over there. Give us a little time to get around there, huh? Yeah, now, when I call out to rush, make it fast. It's the only thing we got in our favor. We'll try and surprise you. Right. See you later. Be careful. Mrs. Radford? Mrs. Radford, can you hear me? Police officers, we've got your place surrounded. We want you to come out. Can you hear me, Ms. Radford? We want you to come out. Ms. Radford? All right, let's go. Hit the door. Joe, you all right? Yeah, what about you? In the kitchen. It's empty. Okay, just a minute. Living room's empty. Not in here. And in the bedroom. Nothing here. Yeah. How about that? Hey, Joe, back here. Where are you? Bedroom, straight back. All right. Have a look. Would you check the bathroom and all the closets? Everything. She's gone. 10.46 p.m. We double-checked the cottage, all the buildings, and possible hiding places adjoining the Radford house, and then we combed through the immediate neighborhood around the apartment court. There was no trace of the suspect, Stella Radford. In the apartment, we found a picture which neighbors told us was a good likeness of Mrs. Radford. Al Chambra got to a phone, called the office, and a local broadcast and an APB was gotten out on her. We figured she probably slipped out of the house without being noticed during the general excitement immediately after the shooting. Her phone call to one of the neighbors warning that she'd kill anyone who came after her only served as a stall to give her more time for a getaway. 10.55 p.m., Ray Pinker and the crime lab crew arrived and began their preliminary investigation. Judging from the bloodstains found on the furniture and the rug in the living room and on the front steps of the cottage, Radford had first been shot while he was in the living room, and then apparently he ran out the front door to escape the gunfire. A trail of seven empty shells ejected from a 38 caliber automatic seemed to indicate that his wife followed him out the front door, still firing at him as he tried to get away. We checked the apartment court garage, but the Radford's car was still there. We remained at the apartment court interviewing the neighbors and trying to get a line on some of Mrs. Radford's known friends and associates. Joe, how'd you make out? Not much, Al. Neighbor I talked to hardly even knew the Radfords. How about you? Not much better. Girl in the apartment up the way named Joanne Taylor. She told me she knew Radford's wife fairly well. Says she has a sister in town, doesn't have any idea where she lives, though. How about the boyfriends Mrs. Radford's supposed to be running around with? She know anything about that? She thinks she was doing a little running around. She doesn't know who the men are, though. Hear anything about Radford's condition? Yeah, I checked with George Street a couple of minutes ago. It's pretty critical. I don't know if he's going to make it or not. Joe, Al, back here, hustle it. Come on. What do you got? Radford's neighbor's next door. Whitley's just got a call from Ms. Radford. She's talking to Mr. Whitley on the phone right now. Oh, let's go. I don't know what this is all about. Oh, yes, yeah, Sergeant. I was just going to run and get you. You have Mrs. Radford on the phone? I did, yeah. She hung up just before you came in. Wouldn't talk, though. Did she tell you where she is? 
No, she sure sounded funny. I think something snapped. She's a little crazy. Well, what'd she say? Why'd she call you? Said she wanted to find out if her no-good husband was dead yet. That's all I could make out. While Ed and I waited with Mr. Whitley in his apartment, Al Shambra got to another phone in one of the adjoining apartments, called our business office, and gave them the number of the Whitley's telephone. He asked them to make arrangements as soon as possible to have all incoming calls at the Whitley's traced to their origin. Meantime, Ed and I were briefing Ernest Whitley as to what he should say if and when the suspect, Stella Radford, called him back. There was no phone extension in his apartment, so the only way we'd be able to monitor the conversation would be for Whitley to share the receiver with one of us. We waited. 11.30 p.m., 11.45, midnight, 12.15 a.m. Sergeant? All right, try and keep the receiver tilted so we can listen. Yeah, sure, hope I got it straight. Okay. Hello? Ernie, this is Stella. Did you find out what I told you to? Yeah, yeah, I called the hospital. Wally's a lot better. It's not as bad as they thought it were. What do you mean it's not bad? Are you trying to kid me? No, it's the truth, Stella. It's not half bad at all. Wally's going to be all right. Couldn't be. I shot him four or five times. How could he be all right? Look, I didn't say he was all right. I said he was going to be all right. Look, it's nothing serious. Not half as bad as they thought. You're lying. You know you're lying, Ernie. Look, come on, snap out of it, will you, Stella? It's going to be all right. Wally forgives you. Believe me, he does. Now, look, why don't you come home? We'll get the whole thing straightened out. There won't be any trouble. Why don't you stop trying to kid me? It's not going to be all right. I've seen the last of you and the last of Wally. Stell. I'm with my boyfriend now. We're getting out of town. Now, wait a minute, Stell. Use your head, huh? Don't go rushing in anything. You don't have to tell me. I know what I'm doing. I don't care if that dumb husband of mine lives or dies. But just tell him he'd better not try to follow it. Oh, Stell. My boyfriend's an ex-con. He's got a gun and he knows how to use it. Well, Stella, will you listen a minute? You can tell that to the cops, too, in case they're going to follow us. They try and stop us and they're going to have a fight in there. Look, head. you keep talking. Will you listen for just a minute? Where are you now? Let me come down and talk to you. Not a chance. Wait a minute, Estelle. He gave me a message for you, honey. He left something with me. He wants you to have it. What? His wallet. He gave it to me just before he left for the hospital. Got $94 in it. Says he doesn't care what you think of him. He wants you to have the money. $94? Yeah. He didn't have that much money with him. Where'd he get it? Well, uh, I don't know anything about that, but it's right here in his wallet, just the way he gave it to me. He wants you to have it. That's all I know. I don't get it. He didn't have that much money. Well, what do you want me to do? Take it back to him? Tell him you didn't want it? Look, give the guy a break, huh, Stell? It's the only way he's got to show you how he feels about you. Stell? Isn't that right? Well, how about it, Stell? You got the money with you? I told you, yeah. Pick it up anytime you want. No. You bring it down here. I'll pay your cab fare, buy you a drink. You can meet my boyfriend. Yeah. Stell? Hello, Stell? Yeah? about 12.30 now. I'll be down here in half an hour, huh? Uh-huh. I'm in a bar right on the corner. You can't miss it. Where? What corner? Ninth and Avalon. As soon as the suspect, Stella Radford, hung up, we went to the apartment cottage next door where Al Shambra was on the phone in constant communication with our business office. He told us that somehow there'd been a slip-up. They were unable to trace the call to its point of origin. 12.36 a.m., According to plan, Ernest Whitley left his apartment, called a taxi, and headed downtown to keep his appointment with the suspect, Stella Radford. Ed Jacobs and Lieutenant Tony Ruiz from Homicide followed him. Al Shamber and I stood by at the apartment. More waiting. 1 a.m., 1.30, 2 a.m. I think they'd call us anyway. wonder what the hitch is. Well, it's kind of hard to figure, Al. It's either a bum steer or they ran into some kind of trouble, maybe. And Mrs. Radford, she really warmed up to the idea when the money was mentioned. Apparently, huh? yeah. I was listening in when Whitley gave her the story. She seemed to go for it. Kind of hard to tell. The way this whole thing shapes up, she can... Might be them now. Give a look. Joe? Oh, yeah, Ed. 
What happened? How'd it go? We covered the bottle clothing, cruised the neighborhood, gave her plenty of time. Yeah. No luck, she didn't show. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. Friday, January 21st, 2.28 a.m. With the failure of the suspect, Stella Radford, to keep the date with her next-door neighbor, Ernest Whitley, at the Avalon Boulevard bar, we reached a temporary stalemate. Despite the fact that checks were made at all restaurants, bars, and other business places in the vicinity of 9th and Avalon open that time of night, there was no report or trace of the suspect. While the search continued, we stood by at the Whitley apartment in the hope that Mrs. Radford might call back. A check of our records and identification bureau failed to turn up any record on either the victim or the suspect, his wife. Ed called Georgia Street Receiving Hospital again, but there was no change. Wallace Radford's condition was still critical. At 2.35 a.m., Stella Radford telephoned again. While we listened in, she told Whitley that she'd had no intention of keeping that appointment with him at the Avalon Boulevard bar. She told him that she knew he was working with the police, that she saw officers follow Whitley to the bar where they were supposed to have met. She again warned him of the consequences in the event anybody tried to apprehend her. After she hung up, we checked with the business office, and they told us that the calls had been coming from a telephone prefix which was impossible to trace. Ten minutes later, Whitley got another call from the Radford woman. The conversation went on for the better part of 20 minutes. She didn't seem to make much rhyme or reason. Her only concern was the condition of her husband, whether or not he was dead. She hung up abruptly, but 15 minutes later, she called Whitley again. Look, Stell, I told you there isn't going to be any trouble. Now, why don't you go and see Wally? He's lying down there in the hospital. He wants to see you. How about it, huh, Stell? Is he dead or not? That's all I want to know. My boyfriend and I are leaving first thing in the morning. I want to find out before I... Why don't you at least give me a chance to talk to you, Stell, huh? We've been good friends. You know I wouldn't do anything to hurt you. You or Wally. Now, let me talk to you, huh? There's nothing to talk about. If you got anything to say, you can tell me now. All I want to do is find out about I Wally. I told you he's hurt, but he's going to be all right. It's not serious. Stell? Why don't you stop lying to me? But I'm not lying, Stell. I wouldn't lie about something like that. What's the matter with you, anyway? You've been drinking? What's it your business? You're not kidding me, Ernie. You're trying to help the cops. Don't you think I know that? What kind of a fool you think I am? But I'm trying to help, Stell. That's all. Sure, you're trying to help. Not me, though. You're trying to help the cops. I know they're with you. When we made that day to meet at the bar, you told them all about it. No. You left the house, and they left right after you. I Stell. know all about it. No, you got it wrong, honey. I'm trying to help both of you, you and Wally. I'm trying to help the best way I know how. Now, why don't you come home? I told you, we'll straighten the whole thing out. There won't be any trouble. Don't hand me that. I said, we're leaving town, me and my boyfriend. Now, what about that money? Ninety-four dollars. She said Wally wanted me to have Yeah, that's right. He does. Now, how can I get it to you if you don't trust me? Get away from the cops, that's all. Oh, Stell. Maybe I could use the money, but I'm not giving myself up. Look, you're wrong about the cops, Stell. Believe me, you are. Now, why won't you let me meet you someplace? Any place you want, just let me talk to you. How many times do I have to tell you there's nothing to talk about? All I want to know is about Wally. Is he dead yet? But I told you, he's not dead. He's going to be all right. But why can't you believe me? It's not what they thought. Wally will be okay. Dad, yeah. in the next room. Mm. But what for, Stell? Why? Now, come on, snap out of it, huh? No, it's the truth, so help me. Yeah, what's the matter? Well, it just happened to strike me. You hear that streetcar that just went by a minute ago? Yeah, it did. Why? Did you notice a little before that when we were listening on the phone? Sounded like the same thing coming over the line, didn't it? Yeah, come to think of it, it did. Matter of fact, I heard it a couple of times coming over the phone. It's pretty regular. Yeah, that's what I mean. Streetcars have been passing by here regularly, too. Not much of a time lapse, either. Not much more in a minute. Mm hmm Well, I mean between the time when we hear it over the phone and the time the streetcar actually passes this place. Yeah. 
Well, if we've got the right angle, there's only one way to figure here. She's phoning from somewhere in the neighborhood, and she's fairly close, wouldn't you say? Where do we start looking? Well, car tracks only run two ways. 3.30 a.m. Ed and I went back into the next room and continued to monitor the conversation between Whitley and Mrs. Radford. Whitley seemed to know how to keep the suspect talking, even though the purpose of her conversation seemed to make little or no sense. At 3.42 a.m., while we listened in, on the other end of the line, we again heard the sound of a streetcar approach and pass. Ed checked his watch. Approximately one minute, 38 seconds later, we heard a streetcar pass by in front of the apartment court. Before Ed and I left, we jotted down a note for Whitley asking him to keep Mrs. Radford on the line just as long as possible. We got in the car and drove north along the car tracks at about the normal speed of a streetcar. One minute and 38 seconds of driving brought us a distance of little more than eight blocks. It was on the fringe of a park area. There were only three residential buildings in the immediate vicinity. There were no lights showing in any of them. We checked the location for public telephones, but we found none. 4.15 a.m., we turned around, drove back to the apartment court, and using the same timing procedure, 1 minute 38 seconds at 25 miles an hour, we drove along the car line in a southerly direction. You're not much of a choice. Bars are closed, most of the restaurants. No lights burning on this block. A few up ahead there in the next block, Ed. Yeah. Got to come pretty soon, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a minute right now. I can't see how we'd be wrong on it, can you? Uh, too much to write off is just a coincidence. Mm-hmm. A minute, 15 seconds. A minute, 20. Better slow down, huh? Yeah. What do you think? Well, it's a service station across the street. Yeah, it's closed up. Well, a lot of them have outside pay phones, don't they? You see any? No. None on this side. Let's see, I'll pull up in there, huh? Yeah. There's a phone booth in the back there. There's no lights, though. Looks like somebody in it. Yeah. Looks like a woman. Yeah, it is. Come on. All right, hold it up, lady. She's running for it, Joe. All right, come on. Come on, hold it up, lady. Police officer. Let go. Let, let go of me. What do you think you're doing? Police officers, lady. Here's our identification. I'd like to talk to you. You leave me alone. Just leave me alone. That's all. I don't have to talk to you. Your name's Stella Radford, isn't it? No. No, it isn't. That's your identification? Who sent you here? Who was it? Are you Stella Radford? You couldn't have found out. How'd you know I was here? It was Ernie, wasn't it? Him and his friends. He told you. No, ma'am. I don't see how you found me. Somebody had to tell you. You never could have found me. I don't see how I made any mistake. Yeah, that's right. Let's go, lady. April 16th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 88, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. The victim of the shooting, Wallace John Radford, recovered from his wounds and refused to press charges against his wife. However, she was tried in Superior Court and found guilty of Section 245 PC, assault with a deadly weapon. She was sentenced to the term prescribed by law. Assault with a deadly weapon is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a term not less than one, nor more than ten years. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joseph M. Kinnick, President of the California State Juvenile Officers Association. Thank you. The California State Juvenile Officers Association has asked me to present this award of merit to Jack Webb and to Dragnet for outstanding service to law enforcement in the authentic and sympathetic portrayal of the police officer in the field of delinquency control. Thank you very much, Mr. Kenny. 
And I'll be looking forward to meeting you again and the members of your association at your annual conference banquet tomorrow night here in Los Angeles. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Barney Phillips, Herb Ellis, Jack Crucian, Helen Cleave. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, nature plus the threat of man-made catastrophes make continuing help and constant preparedness necessary. The Red Cross binds these needs. Answer the Red Cross call with a generous contribution. Now it's Counter Spy on NBC. Dragnet, the episode titled The Big Streetcar from the Spring of 1952 and from the Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co producer. Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We've mentioned quite a few songwriters tonight, and we sometimes forget that one of the greatest was William Shakespeare. He interpolated quite a few lyrics in his plays, and composers across five centuries have had a good time setting them to music. One of the most famous begins, Who is Sylvia? What is she? The first of those two questions is the title of an episode of the detective series, Let George Do It, that starred the actor Bob Bailey in his pre-Johnny Dollar days. You might think we want to play this show on the eve of Valentine's Day because it refers to that beautiful love song from Two Gentlemen of Verona, which in turn features an amorous character named Valentine. But no, as usually happens every year at this time, we're featuring Let George Do It because the title character's last name is... Well, you're about to hear from November 22nd, 1948, with references to the beautiful movie star Hedy Lamarr and the wild animal trainer Clyde Beatty, it's Who is Sylvia? from the Mutual Don Lee Network series, Let George Do It. Who is Sylvia? Another adventure of George Valentine. Personal notice, changes my stock and trade. If it's something you're afraid to let someone else do for you, you can trust me, George Valentine. Write full details. <laughs> Dear Mr. Valentine, is she trying to get me out of her life, or is it my imagination? Is she in love with someone else, or am I just going mad with jealousy? I've got to know these things about Sylvia, or I won't be able to go on. Maybe it's weak and degrading for a man to grovel like this, but you've got to help me. I'll be waiting for you at my home. Waiting for you at my home between the hours of two and four. Gratefully yours, Leslie Graham. Uh Uh-huh. 
Whoever wrote this letter had a hard time keeping the pen on the paper, Brooksy. Well, it's a pretty pathetic letter to swallow, George. It ain't traveling, Angel. The guy's in a bad way. Well, I don't see how you fit in. This is something for the psychiatrist's couch. Yeah, maybe so. But I'm curious. Hmm? Who was Sylvia? What is she? Valentine, we have to hurry. Sylvia may be back any minute. She's out shopping. Yeah, I was waiting for you to get started, Graham. Yes, why don't you pull yourself together? Valentine, I, I want you to put my mind at ease. Assure me one way or the other that the things I keep thinking are either right or wrong. Oh, in other words, you want me to spy on your wife. Oh, no, it's not as tawdry as that. It's something that happens to a man when he's in love with a creature as beautiful as Sylvia. Why don't you try trusting her, Mr. Graham? Why? Here, Miss Brooks. Take a look at this picture. Can't you see why the word trust becomes meaningless? Mm. Yeah, very choice. But there are a great many beautiful women in the world, Graham. Some of them even manage to wash diapers. Oh, you wouldn't understand. When we were first married, the only person I was jealous of was her dead husband. Then it started. I, I began to hate every man who stared at her in the street. Then whenever I was away from her, I, I, I was no good for anything. All right, now, all right. Now there's a handsome blonde gentleman named Tom Vickers who trails around after her. So you can see how... I can see everything, Graham. But it's no soap. Divorce cases as such are not in my line. You would help me if I could make you understand. Understand how a man can get on his knees and keep begging a woman over and over again to tell her that she loves it. Yes, you could be that much afraid of losing a valid find the liquor cabinet. Get him some brandy. Okay, George. Oh, I... I'm tired, tired. Come on now, sit down. Now, go on. Do as I say. Sit down. I... I feel like I'm dead inside. You'll be all right in a minute. Here, Mr. Graham. Take this. Thank you. <sighs> oh, Leslie! Uh, this is a pretty tableau, I must say. What's happened? Uh, just two, two friends. They, they were just leaving, Sylvia. What has Leslie been telling you? And who are you? The name's Valentine, Mrs. Graham. Your husband thought we could investigate a private matter for him. And we were just leaving. I'm the only private matter in my husband's life, Mr. Valentine. But it seems that I'm not private enough. Please, Sylvia, not in front of these people. What difference does it make after what you must have told them? I'm sure Leslie hired you to spy on me. You can relax. I'm not for hire. I know what Leslie's like when he starts raving, Mr. Valentine. What were some of the more vivid highlights of his fantasy? Believe me, Mrs. Graham, he had nothing but good to say about you. Oh, Leslie, what am I going to do with you? I know. Well, darling, what's happened to this love of ours? Well, you ought to know. You've done everything to strangle it with your insane jealousy. How the other side lives. You never trusted me a moment. When you could have loved me, you made scenes. I like stopped off and got that. Oh, I didn't realize you had company, Sylvia. This isn't company, Tom. It's a three-ring circus. Leslie, after the disgusting spectacle you've made of yourself, I... I think you ought to go upstairs. Yes, Sylvia. All right, I'll go. Sylvia, you shouldn't have spoken to Leslie like that. Oh, shouldn't I have? Here, darling, take these packages into the other room. But that's true. Please, you had... Tom, I want to speak to these people. Alone. Okay, Sylvia. Yes, Sylvia? <laughs> I see we've become friends. You should live that long. No, I must apologize for Miss Brooks. Sometimes her frankness embarrasses me. What were you going to say? Well, Mr. Valentine, I wanted you to understand 
I have to be firm with Leslie. If I coddled him, he'd only feel sorry for himself. Well, it seems to me that when a man's in a state like that, even a very beautiful wife could find a touch of kindness in her. Good night, Sylvia. Good night. You didn't mention your first name. Oh, but, uh, never knew fresh air could smell so good. Oh, I think I know the secret of Sylvia's attraction. She wears knockout drops for perfume. Oh, you Sylvia. Well, the beautiful Sylvia seems to have made an impression. Brooksy, I got a fast research job for you. Back files down at the newspaper. What do you mean, George? There's a house full of dynamite back there, Angel. And when and if the blow-off comes, I want to be well informed. Curious again? Still curious. Who is Sylvia? What is she? George, I got all that stuff you wanted. And believe me, it took some digging. Good, good work, Brooksy. Let's see. Well, Sylvia hooked Leslie three years ago. He was a wealthy investment broker. Uh-huh, but what about the late spouse number one? Oh, hold your hat, darling. Sylvia and Hugh Frankel, a Chicago importer, enjoyed married bliss less than a year. Then, alas, the poor man departed this world under sad circumstances. Yeah, yeah, Brooksy. Never mind the suspense. Well, after a midnight snack of liver patty sandwiches, which proved to be tainted, yeah. Frankel died of ptomaine poisoning and indigestion. Mm. It seems Sylvia wasn't feeling well that evening and just had toast and tea. Well, well. And according to the Chicago newspapers, the coroner's jury could see nothing other than an unfortunate accident. Yeah, well, it was probably looking at Sylvia all the time. What goes with that girl, George? What has she got? You mean besides deluxe equipment and extras? Mm Mm-hmm. A mind that's always figuring what's best for Sylvia. A heart that's just put there to beat, and a soul that thrives on men rolling in the dust. Oh, wait a minute. That's a recipe worth putting down. To some guys, that combination like the apple was to Eve. They know it's no good for them, but they want it. Yeah, well, we'll go on with this session on abnormal psychology in a minute. Hello, Valentine. Oh, yeah, Lieutenant. Well, sure I was out there. What's that, Riley? Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, of course I'll be right away. What is it, George? For Lieutenant Riley, that was a short conversation. The good lieutenant happens to be very busy at the Grahams. The Grahams? Yeah, Brooksy. Leslie Graham killed himself this evening. Valentine, you wouldn't find me here at all tonight on what looks like a routine suicide case, except for one thing. Oh, I'm away ahead of you, Lieutenant. You found out that I paid a little visit to the Graham homestead yesterday. Mm-hmm. Then I was afraid to stay away, if you know what I mean. Oh, we both know what you mean. Don't be so understanding, Miss Brooks. I'm sorry. We uh, checked with the partner in Graham's firm downtown. He says Graham was making all kinds of morbid remarks throughout the day about life not being worth the candle. You know, scintillating stuff like that. Does uh, that check with what you found, or is there more to it? Well, Lieutenant Graham was in an even worse frame of mind when I saw him. Yeah? What do you want to see about? Unhappiness, Lieutenant. Oh, unhappiness, he says. Now, would you mind being just a little more specific? Was he unhappy because of his golf game? Or did someone nudge his fenders? Come on, come on, get to the point or I'll... Yes, sir, Lieutenant, yes, sir. Graham was unhappy because he wasn't getting along with Mrs. Graham. He wanted me to get the usual kind of evidence. And we have scruples, you know, Lieutenant. I know, I know. 
Well, he wouldn't be the first guy to bump himself off because of a sour marriage. Where is Mrs. Graham? Uh, in the drawing room with that whatchamacallit guy, Vickers. Oh, how cozy. Yeah. Hey, Doc, are you through? Yes, Lieutenant. Uh, seems to be just as the family doctor said. And what was that? Oh, hello, Valentine. Uh, Graham loaded his highball glass full of Renapol, Lieutenant. Renapol? Yeah. You can buy it in any drugstore. You don't need a prescription. It's specific for headaches, mostly migraine. Well, wouldn't Graham have to take a lot of it? He took a whole bottle. Oh. And with whiskey, that really means a one-way ticket. Anyway, he didn't find it hard to take. It's practically tasteless. Well, I'll go and tell Mrs. Graham. There'll be an inquest in a couple of days. And I'll go write out my report. So long, Doc. All right, my fancy friend. Why did you hold out on the lieutenant like that? Did I do that? Oh, stop being coy, George. Well, everything I said was the absolute truth. Yeah, but you didn't say enough. You could have made this thing look more like murder and less like suicide. You know, house full of dynamite, the first husband who was crazy for liver patty sandwiches. Well, you heard the lieutenant, Angel. There'll be an inquest, so the facts will come out a few days later. Yes, but what's the idea? Just this, Brooksy. I want Sylvia to play hand-hand as though she had all the cards in the deck. Give her every chance to make a slip. Oh. George. Hmm? What have you got there under your top coat? You mean this? Oh, you swiped her picture. Oh, now, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm going to put it on my desk and just stare at it. <laughs> what do you think it'll do to me? It'll get you a black eye from me. Oh, now, look, what's on, what's on your mind? George? I don't know, Brooksy. Let's say just a hunch. Now, you're on a long home. I'm going to pay a few calls on the neighborhood druggist. See you in the morning. Let me see. Well, the fact is I haven't seen Mrs. Graham in my drugstore in weeks. I see. The truth is I sold one bottle of Renapal recently, and that was to a man. Oh, what did he look like? Can you remember? Come on, try. Oh, that's easy. He was a big strapping fellow. I was saying to myself, who'd think anybody like that would have a head hit? Yeah, yeah, but what did he look like? Yeah, broad shoulders, blonde hair, like an athlete. That's enough. Thank you, friend. Alone, Sylvia? What did you do? Send Tommy home? Yes, George. You see, I took the trouble to find out your first name. Oh. I thought Tommy'd be here trying to comfort you in your bereavement. Well, he was. But his efforts were getting a little too arduous. And I've had a long and hectic day. What do you want? I just wanted to tell you I know Tommy bought that Renapal. Oh, really? Well, maybe he had a headache. <laughs> Oh, I'm full of all kinds of miscellaneous information tonight. I also know that a certain Mr. Frankel ate his way into an early grave. I'm an ill-starred woman. I just can't keep husband. Well, it should make interesting small talk at the inquest. Oh, you won't get a rise out of me. I can try. How about this? What happened to your picture, Sylvia? What? You're the other one who took it. Well, it's just a picture. I want it back, and you're going to give it to me. Going to the police? <laughs> you seem to have lost some of your poise, Sylvia. I swear I'll kill you if you don't get out of my life. I moved in to stay. But you're going to change your mind. Well, I'm going to take it easy. Put that punch bowl down. It's probably worth a lot of dough. You forgot that I've got plenty of money. Watch you. You're going to have a face full of scratches for weeks. Get away. Do you want me to take it? You do think that I couldn't kill Sylvia, what's going on? Oh, oh Tommy. Oh, Tommy. So glad you've come back. 
Valentine, what are you trying to do? Defend myself and not too successfully. Lord, I wouldn't have known what to do. You do anything to hurt her, Valentine, and I'll kill you. Why don't you start now? I feel just like... Well, you better, I'll do... Now, don't bother getting up, Jungle Jim. Just listen. Being threatened with murder twice in five minutes does something for my ego. But it does even more to my temper. You have had a pretty busy five minutes, haven't you? Slow motion, Sylvia. Just wait till I really get started. George, isn't it enough to have Sylvia's picture in front of you on the desk? You don't have to stare at it with a magnifying glass. Yeah, well, somehow, Angel, I don't feel I've gotten close enough to that lady. Well, you've gotten close enough for her to play tic-tac-toe all over your face. Well, it wasn't all one-sided. She has a few broken fingernails to show for it. Oh, darling, you know you're skating on thin ice. Especially now that you found out Vickers bought that Renapal. That's right. Go ahead and comfort me. Now, look, Brooksy. Yeah? This picture of Sylvia stealing all the glory from the beautiful mansion in the background was taken by a professional photographer. Well, so what? So his name is on the bank of it, Horace Maddox in Sanford. I want you to have a chat with him. Way out in Sanford? Yeah, that's right. Find out when he took this picture, where, the name of the woman, everything. Oh, George, we know the name. Don't argue, Brooksy. Just make sure you're back in time for the inquest. I'm going to need that information. To prove what? What well, only guessing now. I'm not used to receiving ladies in my apartment at this hour. Besides, I don't remember putting you on my list. Aren't you going to ask me in? I really ought to frisk you for deadly weapons first, but come on in. Thank you. All right, Sylvia, what is it? George, why can't you like me? Like you? Why, you're my fluffy little lamb. I know you think I'm here because I want something. Yeah, I bet I know what it is. You were baking a cake and you just ran out of sugar. I want that picture. Oh, no, no, Sylvia. No fisticuffs tonight. No, this time I'm willing to pay for it, George. Hmm? In exchange, you can have me and everything I've got. Wow. That's like being offered Fort Knox and throwing in Hedy Lamar as an afterthought. I think I'd like the arrangement, too. I have an idea that you'd be the first man I ever met who'd be able to tell me what to do. Well, thanks. That puts me right in the same class with Clyde Beatty. As far as money's concerned, George, you may know what you're getting. I don't want there to be any unknown quantity in the deal. (sighs) 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 And to think they go to all that trouble to make an atom bomb. Well? Look, Sylvia, I want to live a little longer. You're as treacherous as the ragged edge of an open tin can. Now, get this straight. I'm sticking with this case, even if it gives me gray hair and bursitis in the left shoulder. All right. Now I've got a surprise for you. Here we go. Yesterday, Tommy Vickers and I were married. Okay. You can stop rocking on your heels, George. Married to Vickers? And still making fancy offers? That could have been arranged. You just have to wait a little while. Oh, brother, this is the jackpot. First Hugh Frankel, then Leslie Graham, then Tom Vickers... And eventually one George Valentine. I don't know what you mean. Are you crazy? Never mind that. Uh, 
Let me tell you why I married Tom. No, let me tell you. Because I'm a chump, a nuthead. With what I knew, I could have stopped it. Yes, but you didn't, Doc. Now, when this case comes to trial, you won't have to testify against Tommy. All the background of this sordid little triangle. The story I'll tell is that I knew suspicion might point to Tom. But to show my faith in his innocence, I married him anyway. Oh, I gotta hand it to you, Sylvia. Me too. The other way. It's too bad one of us has to lose. And it's not going to be me. Yes, Miss Brooks, I remember very well the day I took that picture. Well, that's fine, Mr. Maddox. Uh, Annie was so excited, I could hardly make her stand still. Annie? Uh, Why, yes. Annie Ferguson, that's her name. Oh. Yes, please go on. She was so beautiful that day. She kept rattling on about her father's mansion. She wanted to make sure that I got Woody crashed into the picture. In a way, it was, uh, well, a little pathetic. Well, is there anything else you can remember about her? Well, I know she couldn't have been very happy there because shortly afterwards she ran away. Oh, I see. Well, now tell me, just how do I get to this Woody Crest? Oh, it's just on the outskirts of town. Any cab will take you there. Oh, that's fine. Uh, they'll be glad to see you. I know they've been trying to locate Annie all these years. All right, everybody, we can start now. This is Assistant District Attorney Griggs. This is all going to be very informal. We ought to be out of your house in a little while, Mrs. Graham. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Griggs. I'm supposed to assure all of you that you're not supposed to say anything here today that might incriminate you, just in case what transpires here warrants an indictment. Is that clear? We all know the circumstances of Leslie Graham's death. Do you have any further comments to make on your autopsy report, Coroner? No, sir. Death due to overdose of Renapol. Very well. We can go on. Just a few questions. I believe, Valentine, you said you had something important in connection with this inquiry. Yeah, that's right, D.A. I have another witness I'd like to introduce. Sergeant, tell Mr. Cook we're ready for him now. Yes, sir. Hello? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, certainly. It's for you, Mr. Valentine. Thanks. Look, Valentine, do you have to have personal calls in here? Well, it won't happen again, Lieutenant. Uh, Hello? Yeah, Brooksy. The airport? Well, you ought to be able to get here in a few minutes. Go on. Well, I guess now I can stop guessing. Go on, hop a cab, Angel. All right, now, are you Mr. Cook? Uh, Yes, sir. Well, look, don't be nervous. I just want to ask you one question. Take a look around this room. Uh, Yes. A few days before Leslie Graham's death, someone bought a bottle of Renapol in your drugstore. Do you see that person in this room? Why, why, yes. It's that gentleman over there with the blonde hair. Hey, what is this? Is that true, Mr. Vickers? Well, uh, I guess so, but uh, I didn't think it was important. Ye gods, not important, he says. I could buy Renapol. Joe Smith could buy it. But when you do, Vickers, it's more than important. Well, uh, Why'd you buy it? Do you suffer from headaches? Well, no, but Uh, I can explain. Why don't you, Vickers? Well, it's all very simple. I... I don't know how Leslie got hold of this stuff, but I bought it for Sylvia. Tom, what? What do you say? Well, didn't I? Why, for months you've been telling me about those terrible headaches going to the doctor twice a week. Tom, Tom, I don't want to believe this. Believe what? It was raining that day. You wanted to get home, so you asked me to stop in at the drugstore. Is that true, Mrs. Graham? Or Mrs. Vickers, rather. I keep forgetting. Oh, Mrs. Vickers, that's the only thing I can think of. 
I'm married to the man who killed Leslie. Sylvia! Keep talking, Mrs. Vickers. I haven't had a headache in ages. My doctor can tell you that. Tom. Oh, Tom, I believed you. He was such a comfort when Leslie wasn't himself. And now to think that you try to use me to get out of this terrible... But I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Leslie may not have been the best husband in the world, but he was a human being. Oh, Tom. Oh, Tom, I can't. I can't lie for you. I can't. Kiss of death. What did you say, Valentine? Uh, nothing, Lieutenant. I was just sympathizing with Mrs. Vickers. You can do that later, Valentine. Surely you've got something to say, Vickers. Well, I, I could go on saying I'm innocent. What good would it do? If you didn't buy this runner, Paul, from Mrs. Graham, then it couldn't have accidentally found its way into Rossman's whiskey. Facts leave me no choice but to ask for an indictment for murder. Uh, just a minute, Griggs. I'd like to say something. If it has something to do with the case, go ahead, Valentine. First of all, I agree that there should be an indictment for murder. Oh, what are you doing? Just making it unanimous? Come on, quit stalling. Hey, hey, hold on there, young lady. Where do you think you're going? Out of my way, Sergeant. I don't have to stall any longer, Lieutenant. Here you are, George. What's this all about? One minute, T.A. Yeah, Lieutenant. Hmm? Briggs, take a look at this picture. Hmm. Well, what about it? Just wanted you to look at it. Now, you, Sylvia. Do you recognize this? Okay. Well, of course. It's a picture of myself. And the house in the background. That's Father's mansion on our estate. Uh-huh. Gentlemen, take a look at this picture through this magnifying glass. The white plaque on the entrance post. Ordinarily, you can't see it. Go on, now, what does it say, Griggs? Well, I can make out, uh... Woody Crest. Okay, that's the name of the place. But there's another word that follows. You can only see the first two letters. The shrubbery covers the rest. That's right. S. A. Well, surprisingly few words in the English language beginning with S. A. that fit with Woodycrest. Would you give us that word, Sylvia? No! Brooksy, you just came from Sanford. What did you find Woodycrest was? A sanatorium. More brutally, a mental institution. An insane asylum. Oh, They're still looking for one Annie Ferguson who escaped five years ago and embarked on a new life and a new career murder. <laughs> Sylvia, no matter what they do, I'll stick by you. You didn't know what you were doing. Oh, Sylvia. You fool. Don't you realize that you were going to sit in the gas chamber for what I did to Leslie? And I'd get your money, too. But now you know. Now you know. Yes, sir. Now we know who is Sylvia and what she is. All right, all right, Valentine. You were as smart as a whip. But don't think I'm forgetting you held out on me. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I thought that was the only way to do it. <laughs> but the next time... Time, time. Back to your corners, gentlemen. <laughs> oh, saved by the bell. <laughs> oh, darling, I know your mind moves in mysterious ways, but... Yeah? But what made you so sure it was murder and it had to be Sylvia? Well, no matter how much of a fancy Tommy boy is, he wouldn't buy any poisonous substance right at the corner drugstore. That's when I vaguely began to suspect some kind of a trap. More coffee, folks. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, please. Yeah. I'd like to. When you're through there, I'll take a check, Sylvia. What's your name, sister? Sylvia. I don't feel huh? so good. I, uh... <clears throat> I don't think I want any more coffee. I want to go home. 
Most motorists today expect and deserve at least three things from their cars. Fast starts, smooth acceleration, and lots of extra power. And if you haven't been enjoying these three motoring advantages, we'll have to blame it on the recent and unavoidable shortage of Chevron Supreme gasoline. But the shortage is over, and right now you can get high-octane Chevron Supreme again at most any standard station or independent Chevron gas station. So if your car has had starting trouble, and if it's been logy on hills, say goodbye to all that annoyance by saying, fill her up with Chevron Supreme. One of the reasons this premium quality gasoline gives your car all the motoring advantages your car was made for is because it's climate-tailored. That means Chevron Supreme gasoline gives peak performance in each different altitude and temperature zone, wherever you drive in the West. Ask for a tank full at an independent Chevron gas station or a standard station where they say and mean, we'll take better care of your car. Next week, when you tune our way for another adventure of George Valentine, you'll find George poring over the latest letter to come to his desk, a letter that reads... Dear Valentine, I bet you never heard of this before. I've got to commit a crime to keep from being a criminal. And what I've got to do involves murder. There's no way out for me unless I can get some help. You can't get in touch with me, so I'll be dropping in on you. The name? Bill Moran. Next week, a new and exciting case for George. Stand in for murder. Tonight's adventure of George Valentine has been brought to you by Standard of California on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and Standard stations throughout the West. Let George Do It stars Robert Bailey as George with Francis Robinson as Claire. Wally Mayer appears as Lieutenant Riley. Tonight's story was written by David Victor and Herbert Little Jr. and directed by Don Clark. Also heard in the cast were Francis Cheney as Sylvia, Louis Van Ruten as Graham, George Neese as Tommy, Ken Christie as Griggs, and Fred Howard as Maddox. Music is composed and conducted by Eddie Dunstetter. Your announcer, John Heaston. Listen again next week, same time, same station, to Let George Do It. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. From the autumn of 1948, Who is Sylvia? An episode of Let George Do It. George Valentine, that is, here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We mentioned that that title, Who is Sylvia, comes from Shakespeare. Old-time radio is filled with references to the classics, and classic character types populate its thousands of shows, particularly the comedies. Without ignoring the racist overtones, it's important to remember that such characters as Jack Benny's valet, Rochester, and Eddie the waiter on Duffy's Tavern are descended from Harlequin, Truffaldino, and other comic servants in dramatic literature who inevitably get the better of their masters. One of the traditional circus clown types is Silly August, or Dumme August in German. In a way, he represents the futility of human striving. He's incompetent, everything he does is doomed to failure, 
but he wins the audience's affection because he's filled with goodwill and he has a big heart. Nowadays, think Homer Simpson. And in old-time radio, you can think Chester A. Riley, irresistibly portrayed by William Bendix in The Life of Riley. Riley's pals, including the friendly undertaker Digby O'Dell, aren't much help to him. Valentine's Day gives us a good chance to hear exactly what I'm talking about, those fumbling good intentions that lead to frustration in a February 18, 1949 episode of NBC's The Life of Riley. Prell brings you The Life of Riley. Prell, the shampoo that removes unsightly dandruff, leaves hair radiantly lovely, presents... The Life of Riley, with William Bendix as Riley. Well, romantic St. Valentine's Day has come and gone, and Chester A. Riley almost went with it. The combination head and heartache that befell our favorite blunderbuster ace started right before St. Valentine's Day. Riley was sitting in his Morris chair, newspaper in hand, when his 13-year-old son, Junior, entered the room. Pop! Pop, wake up. Take a pen. It's all. Oh, hello, son. I was just reading. Uh, Pop, can I can I ask you something? Well, sure thing, Junior. You won't laugh at me, will you? Now, Junior, what do you take me for? You can tell your dad anything. He'll understand. Well, you see, I've got a girl. He's <laughs> 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 got a girl. <laughs> Junior's got a girl. Junior's got a girl. Oh, now, you said you wouldn't laugh. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry, Junior. Go ahead. What's on your mind? Well, well, soon it'll be Valentine's Day, and, and I was wondering if I should send her a card. Of course you got to send her a card. Why, Valentine's Day is a day that's set aside for lovers. No, love. It's a pain in the neck, if you ask me. No, Junior. Junior, you got the wrong attitude. You're growing up. You're getting beyond the birds and bees stage. You're now in the live girl stage <laughs> I'd better wise you up You see, son, love is... is, is All a... I want to know is if I should send a Valentine card I told you, send her the best card that money can buy Well, I got 50 cents, that ought to buy a nice card 50 cents, is that all she means to you? Why, she'll say, that junior, what a cheapskate Well, what? I saw a real beautiful card with lace and everything It cost about three dollars Now you're talking you're right, Pop. That's the one I'll send her. Will you lend me two and a half dollars? <laughs> Junior, where's your pride? Are you going to spend all that money on a dame who called you a cheapskate? <laughs> oh, but you said if you like a girl, you, you shouldn't send her a cheap card. Look, Junior, I'm in love with your mother, ain't I? Yes. I think she's the most wonderful woman in the world, don't I? Oh, yeah. She lives only for me. Day in and day out, she slaves just to make me happy. And how do I show my appreciation? Look at the Valentine card I'm going to send her. Look, ain't that the cheapest thing you ever saw? Well, I'll say it's cheap. That's a ten-cent card. Five cents, including a three-cent stamp. <laughs> but your mother won't mind, because she's got me. And that's enough for any woman. <laughs> Ha! 
Hi there, Gillis. Oh, oh, hi, Riley. Be with you in a minute. I, I just want to finish reading this here letter. Oh. Who's it from? Riley, it ain't polite to pry when other people is reading mail. But since you insist on knowing, it's from the gas company. And it says, unless you pay the enclosed bill immediately, we shall be obliged to suspend service. Oh, well, you better pay up, Gillis. You better pay up. It's your letter. <laughs> Gillis, you've been opening my mail again. Stop complaining. Businessmen hire secretaries to open their mail. I do it free. <laughs> You've got no right Don't to... get excited. The postman left a batch of your mail at my house by mistake. I thought it was for me. Is that little package there, is that mine too? Yeah, only it's for your missus. Peg? Who's it from? Says on the outside, uh, from Sidney Monahan. Monahan? What's he sending Peg packages for? He's an old boyfriend of hers, ain't he? Oh, that was all over long ago. Besides, when it came to a showdown, she married me instead of him. Yeah, but she's a lot smarter now. <laughs> he stays at your house every time he's in town, don't he? That's just because he's a chiseler. He never meant anything to Peg. Ah, but he's very attractive to women. He's got looks, brains, money. He's a spender. What have you got to offer a woman? I got, uh... I got, uh... <laughs> well, I got... Gillis, you've got to stop spying on me. <laughs> Riley, I'm trying to help you. This here package he sent her. What do I care? He can send her anything he wants. It means absolutely nothing to me. Shake it a little. Maybe we can tell what's in it. <laughs> Better make sure. Open it. No, no. I trust my wife. Well, I trust my wife, too. But if I was you, I'd take this package and... Oh, look what happened. The string broke. By accident. <laughs> Put that penknife away, Gillis. I told you not to open it. Hand it over. Take it easy now. Now look what you've done. You tore the wrapping off. I'll put it back. Hand it over. Oh, now you pulled the cover off of the box. Something fell out. Well, I ain't looking. Whatever it is, pick it up and put it back in the box. I got my eyes shut. I can't even see that locket. <laughs> locket? He's sending her a locket. In the shape of a heart. Genuine gold. There's a note, but, but don't dare read it. It says, uh, to my face and only Valentine. That's no use. I got my eyes shut. In grateful appreciation of your past hospitality and hoping to see you real soon, Sidney. Uh, what a nerve, sending Peg this locket. Yeah. Trying to show me up, that's what. Trying to make Peg think I'm a cheapskate. Riley, you're in trouble. There's only one thing to do. Here's my pen. Well, what for? Sign your name to Monaghan's note. No. And then sign Monaghan's name to your crummy car. No. <laughs> sure, you give Peg the locket. It ain't right. She'll think Monaghan gave her that car. No, it ain't fair. All's fair in love and war, and marriage is war. <laughs> Here, here's my pen. I won't sign it. You got it. You're doing it for your family. No. For your home. No. For your kids. No. For your future. No. This thing is bigger than you are. You're doing it to save the American way of life. Give me that pen and God bless America. <laughs> Dumpling. Riley, I'm awful busy right now. Do you know what day this is? Oh, I haven't got time for riddles. I told you I'm busy. But this is a very, very special day. Darling, it's payday. <laughs> no. Riley, I'm busy. Dumpling, it's Valentine's Day. All right. 
Dumplin', that's no attitude. This is one day when you gotta have a heart full of love. This is Monday, and I got a tub full of your underwear. <laughs> Close your eyes, Dumplin'. Now, look, Riley, let's cut out the ceremony. Just hand me the card. No, <laughs> no, nah, nah. this year is different. I got something better than a card. Here. Why, Riley, what is it? Open it up. <gasps> Why, <laughs> Riley, you darling... A locket. You got me a locket. Gold. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> Just beautiful. Oh, darling, how can I ever thank you? Oh, don't thank me. Thank the mailman. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> don't mention it. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, this, uh, this here card came for you in the mail. I opened it by mistake. Why, it's from Sidney Monaghan. Is that a fact? A Valentine card. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, after all the times he stayed at our house, you'd think he might manage more than a ten-cent card. Five cents. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised if that's all it did cost him. Two cents if you leave out the stamp. <laughs> well, once a cheapskate, always a cheapskate. Now, ain't you glad you married me? Huh? And why shouldn't I be? I've got the sweetest, the most generous husband in the world. Darling... I never told you this before, but when I married you, that was the best thing that could have happened to you. And it worked, huh, Riley? Yeah, sure, it worked all right. Peg didn't suspect a thing, only... Only what? Well, I'm sorry I did it. What? You nuts! You got Peg eating off your hand. What more do you want? But I'm a hypocrite and a liar and a cheat. So you'll never be an Eagle Scout. So what? <laughs> Relax. Be happy. I can't. It's my conscience. I always got to play fair. And giving Peg that locket wasn't fair to Monaghan. Fair? When are you going to wise up, Riley? In this world, it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. Yeah, but... You got to make up your mind what you're going to be, a Great Dane or a Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> Well, yeah, but... You can't go through life with your tail between your legs. You've got to size up your opponent. Then you bear your fangs, sharpen your claws, and tear them to pieces, right? Root! I mean... Uh... Right. Now you're talking. Sure. What am I worrying about? As long as Peg is happy, that's the main thing. It sure is a beautiful locket. Look at it. Hey, what are you doing with it? Well, I'm going to surprise Peg. I'm going to engrave an inscription. To Peg with love from Sydney. I mean, uh, from Riley. That's cute. Say, Gillis, you, you know, this locket don't look as shiny as it did. Just needs a little polish. Yeah, I'll breathe on it and... <sighs> yeah. yeah, that's a lot. Holy smoke, look, it turned green. Did you have garlic for supper? No, no, it's just tin with gilt paint. It, it rubbed off. It's a phony. <laughs> One. Wait till your wife finds out you gave her a cheap hunk of fake jewelry. <laughs> Gillis, I'm in trouble. I should never have made believe that locket was from me. What'll I do? Simple. All you've got to do is get another locket just like this one. Only real gold before Peg finds out. Yeah, but that'll set me back ten bucks and I'm broke. Uh, Gillis, old pal, you got paid today. Lend me some money. Huh? Lend you money? Are you crazy? I'll pay you back Saturday. How do I know? I give you my word. You just said you're a cheat and a liar. How can I take your word? <laughs> you can trust me. When I said I was a cheat, I was really lying. Honest. <laughs> okay, I believe you. Only I'm broke. 
My wife to call on my pay. She grabs it every week. Oh, that's awful. Gillis, you gotta help me. I'm desperate. Go go get some dough from your wife, will you? Will you? I'll thank you not to give me no advice concerning how to handle my wife. Oh, yeah, you're always telling me how to handle my wife. Well, of course, your wife I can handle. My wife I want nothing to do with. <laughs> Good night. Gillis, wait, come back. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Now, Prell Shampoo brings you the second act of The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley. And Riley's desperately in the need of $10. He has tried to borrow everywhere, but to no avail. Now, finally, he has turned to crime. The coast is clear. Oh, I never thought I'd sink as low as this. A common criminal. I should never have stolen that locket. But it's too late now. One crime leads to another. Well, I'd better get to work. Wait a minute. First, make sure I got everything. Flashlights, sneakers, gloves, muscle-leave fingerprints. Oh, yes, a mask. Can't take no chances. Now, a chisel and a hammer. The burglar alarm! Stop! Oh, no, you don't. I got you. Drop my piggy bank. Junior. Junior, get off of me. Pop, it's you. I thought it was Babs. I had an alarm rigged up in case... So it's you, Pa. No, no, you were right the first time. I'm Babs. You can't recognize me with this mask. I know it's you, Pa. Listen, Junior, I'm your father. When I say I'm your sister, you gotta believe me. Oh, it's, it's no use. He outsmarted me. What's the idea of rigging up that alarm? You wanna wake up the whole neighborhood? Well, Babs is always broke, so I figured she might want to... You've got a very suspicious nature. You should trust your sister. Uh, I guess you're right. From now on, I'll trust her. Junior. <laughs> Junior. Say something. Don't stand there looking at me like that. I know how you feel, son. I know it's a terrible thing for a boy to go through life knowing that his father would steal money, so... So to make you feel better, lend it to me. <laughs> well, well, gee, Pop, I can. I need that dough. Junior, I'm begging you. Well... Well, I'll ask Mom. No, 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 she mustn't know. But if I give it to you, she'll find out the bank is empty and she'll ask questions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I know. We'll make it look like a real robbery. I'll hit you on the head with this hammer and... <laughs> no, that, that's no good. Junior, you got to lend me the dough. If you don't lend it to me, after all I've done for you, when you was a baby, I... <laughs> Okay, Pop. Okay. Gee whiz, don't start bawling. Take the money. Thanks, I already did. Riley, my locket's gone. I put it in the drawer well, when I went to... Don't get excited. Don't get excited. Here it is. Well, what are you doing with it? Well, I, uh, I took it to put on an inscription. I, I wanted to surprise you. Look. <laughs> to peg with love. Oh, that's sweet of you, dear. I knew you'd like it. <laughs> Riley, you know, this locket looks different somehow. Different? Well, no, it, it can't. It's the same as the other. Uh, uh, well, it, it seems brighter somehow. Hey, well, you... Oh, well, I, 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 I had it polished. <laughs> oh, well, that explains it. Yeah, it sure does. Hi. Hey, uh, what's that you got there, Mom? Oh, you didn't see it, dear. Your father gave me this lovely locket for St. Valentine's Day. A locket? Oh, so that's Look, what... Junior, look, look at the cute inscription inside. Guess what it says. Crime doesn't pay? Junior. 
Junior, what an odd thing to say. Oh, <laughs> Riley, darling, I can't tell you how much this locket means to me. I know it took a lot of scrimping and saving. Oh, I wouldn't say that. I would. <laughs> Junior, go out and play. Uh, uh, Peg, ain't you got some place to go? You you're all dressed up. Oh, yes, I'm going downtown. I got uh, loads of shopping to do. You want to come along and help me carry some parcels? Well, Peg, if, if you don't mind, I, I think I'll lie down in the front room and take a nap. I, I'll, I'll see you when you get back. Oh, well, I better get going. There's a dozen places I got to go to. Hello? Yes? Yes, this is Mrs. Riley. Yes? Yes. Thank you. Well, of all the nerve. What is it, Mom? That was a wire from Sidney Monaghan. He's coming on the six o'clock train, and as usual, he expects to stay with us. He must think we're running a boarding house. I got a good mind to... Oh, well, I guess we'll have to do it for your father's sake. He's fond of Sidney. Uh, why don't you meet him at the station, Mom? Well, I will not. Well, you'll have a lot of parcels, and make him take you home in a cab. Well, uh, <laughs> that's a very good idea. I will. It's time that graft and Sidney Monaghan paid for something around here. <laughs> Hey, Pop, I'm going over to Edgar's. Oh, still snoozing. It's cold in here. Maybe I'd better cover him up. No, Sonny, never cover them up while they're still snoring. <laughs> oh, it's you, Mr. Odell. Oh, Pop's asleep. I'll wait till he opens his eyes. It's always a novel day. Mr. Adell, I gotta go next door. When Pop wakes up, will you tell him Sidney Monaghan's coming on the Super Chief and he'll be here for supper? Certainly, Junior. Oh, thanks. You haven't been around lately, Junior. Why don't you come over and play with my dear little boy, Moss Bank? <laughs> well, he's just a kid. He won't play basketball or anything. All he wants to do is take his little shovel and go over to an empty lot and dig holes. <laughs> so long. Hmm. Just because, because my boy dig holes, they look down on him. Well, someday he'll look down on them. <laughs> Good grief, how that man can snore. <laughs> Riley, wake up. Hey, huh? Where, where, what's the matter? Where am I? It is I, Digby O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. <laughs> Let me out of here. Relax, man. You're in your own home. Huh? Oh... Oh, yeah. Well, hiya, Digger. Where's Junior? Next door. He told me to tell you Sidney Monaghan's arriving on the train and will be here for supper. Oh, oh Monaghan. Uh, Monaghan? Did you say Monaghan? Monaghan? That's what I said. Monaghan. M as in mortician. O as in obituary. N as in natural. A as in autopsy. H as in hers. A as in angel. And N as in National Association of Undertakers. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I'm a goner. Come, come, man. Don't despair. As we say in our profession, a man may be down, but he's never out until he's carried. <laughs> what is the problem? Well, Monaghan sent Peg a locket for Valentine's Day, and I opened the box and gave it to Peg, and I told her I bought it. Oh, Riley, how could you? Well, for shame. 
What will your dear spouse think when she learns of your dastardly duplicit attack? Yeah, well, it'll, it'll break her heart. You must do something. We must spare her the anguish. As we say in my profession, don't get in too deep. Well, it's too late. Oh, there's still time. Go to the station. Head off this Monaghan and prevent him from coming here. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. It's my only chance. And let me leave you with a word of advice, you snooping wretch. Never be nosy. Others have tried it. Never open a box unless you're inside it. <laughs> well, cheerio. I'd better be shoveling off. You came to meet little Sydney. Hello, Sydney. It's nice to see you again. Say, I never expected you to meet me. Oh, I happen to be in the neighborhood. Oh, my, these packages are heavy. You know, I had a reservation at a hotel, but then I said to myself, if I don't stay with the Rileys, they'll never forgive me. Uh, oh, we'd forgive you. Oh, you're just saying that to be polite. <laughs> Say, that's a mighty pretty locket you got there. Oh, do you like it? Well, the question is, do you like it? I certainly do. Riley gave it to me for a valentine. Yeah, I... <laughs> hey, Riley gave it to you? Why, that locket, why, I... <laughs> why, what's wrong, Sidney? Nothing, it's this California air. It sticks in my throat. <laughs> well, let's go. Just a minute, Sidney. There's, uh, there's something funny about this locket. Oh, no, no, no. Looks fine on you. Riley has good taste. Uh, Sidney, I, uh, I didn't thank you for what you sent me on St. Valentine's Day. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't mention it. Uh, they were delicious chocolates. Well, I'm glad you liked them. Well, let's go. Wait a minute, Sidney. You know you didn't send me any chocolates. You sent me this locket, didn't you? No, Peggy, And I, that I... husband of mine must have opened your parcel and took credit for it. Oh, when I get a hold of him, I... Oh, I'm... now, now, don't be too tough on that big... Uh... He must have had some reason for... Well, I better call home and tell the kids we're on our way. I'll only be a minute. I'll meet you at the information booth. Oh, that Riley. What a character. Sidney! Sidney! Riley, old pal. What? I thought I'd never find you. Come on, Sidney. Well, take it easy. Peggy. Oh, Peg. Peg didn't come with me. That, that, that's what I wanted to tell you. You, 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 you can't stay at our house. I, I, I can't? No, I, I ain't got a house. You, you see, Peg, uh, uh, Peg, uh, Peg has left, left me for good. And she took the kids in the house with her. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, Peg left you. Right? Yeah, she's... Chester uh, Riley. Peg! Peggy, you've come back to me. What? She's come back to me. Ain't that wonderful, Sydney? Now we can go on a second honeymoon. Goodbye, Sydney. Come on, darling. Well, I don't know what you're raving about, but don't you darling me. Yeah, but don't worry. I know all about your little trick with Sydney's locket. Oh. Oh, he squealed on me. He did not. I found out myself. Oh, I should have realized from the very beginning that you're not the kind of a husband who'd be thoughtful enough to buy his wife a locket. Now, wait a minute. I resent that. That ain't true. I am the kind of a husband who'd give his wife a locket. I'll prove it to you. I happen to have it here with me. Here, look at it. That green monstrosity. Huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I forgot. It, it's green. 
Sure and a happy St. Patrick's Day to you, McCushla. <laughs> Peg, I keep telling you, why don't you believe me? Sydney sent you the cheap locket that turned green. I went out and bought that genuine 14-carat gold locket that you're wearing. Oh, stop, Riley. I wasn't born yesterday. I don't believe a word you're saying. But it's true. Honest. Sydney's locket looked just like this here gold one that I bought you. But Sydney's wasn't genuine like this one. Because when I wanted to polish it up, I blew on it like this. And... Sure, and a happy St. Patrick's Day to you, McCushla. <laughs> Dr. and Gamble invite you to join us again next week to hear The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. The script is by Reuben Ship, Alan Lipscott, and Dick Powell. Mrs. Riley is Paula Winslow. Digger O'Dell is John Brown. The Life of Riley is produced by Irving Brecker. This is Ken Niles reminding you to tune in this NBC station every Friday night for Jimmy Durante, Eddie Cantor, Red Skelton, and The Life of Riley. The preceding program was transcribed. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. William Bendix as an imperfect husband in the life of Riley from just after Valentine's Day in 1949 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. The audio engineer is Kenny Pirog. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. When film buffs talk about great movie couples, you'll hear such famous pairings as Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon, and Dick Powell and Ruby Keeler. Another couple that's always mentioned is William Powell and Myrna Loy. Between 1934 and 1947, they appeared in some 14 movies together, none more successful than a little Dashiell Hammett-inspired B-picture that was shot in just over two weeks, The Thin Man. It was a giant success, and the two stars made five more Thin Man movies. Their breezy, sophisticated chemistry was too great to limit them to those whodunits, though, and they excelled in screwball comedy, a genre that flourished in the 1930s and early 40s. It was in 1940, in fact, that they made a film directed by the thin man's Woody Van Dyke, co-written by one of the masters of screwball comedy and an intimate of Orson Welles, Charles Lederer. It was called I Love You, Again, and it was produced twice by the Lux Radio Theater. The first time, it starred William Powell without Myrna Loy, and the second time, Myrna Loy without William Powell. Not to despair, though, Ms. Loy's foil in that second version was a pretty good screwball comedian himself, Cary Grant. It's that latter pairing that we'll hear now, and in addition to the two leads, it includes another strong performance, that of Frank McHugh as Mr. Grant's sidekick, Doc. From June 30th, 1941, and CBS, here's I Love You Again 
from the Lux Radio Theater. Lux presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater brings you Myrna Loy and Cary Grant in I Love You Again with Frank McHugh. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Somewhere in the voluminous files of the Lux Radio Theater, there's a hastily scrawled memo that says, Team Myrna Loy and Cary Grant next week. I think that note was written four or five years ago. And our chance came last week when we discovered that through some happy studio miracle, Myrna was doing nothing but coaxing her flower garden to even greater glory, and the already tanned Mr. Grant was just lying on the beach tanning. A phone call to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and we had a comedy which made golden music at the box office. I Love You Again, from the story by Octopus Roy Cohn. Just imagine yourself walking into your own house with no recollection of what you'd been doing for the last nine years. That's the situation Cary Grant faces in the role of Larry Wilson. And to complicate things a bit more, Myrna Loy, as Mrs. Wilson, is extremely doubtful of his whole behavior. We have some doubters in this audience, too, I've discovered. They want to know how I, a mere man, can speak so confidently about Lux Flakes. Between the lines of their letters, I can read, What, my dear sir, have you ever washed in it? Well, well, here's the answer. Right now, I'm probably one of the biggest customers our product has. When you're shooting a Technicolor picture like Reap the Wild Wind, you've got hundreds of brilliantly colored costumes to worry about. And in the course of a shooting schedule of about five months, those costumes get some pretty hard use. But we've got to keep them looking bright and fresh. And that's where Lux Flakes comes in. I know they're good business for me at Paramount, that's why I feel pretty safe in saying they're good business for you at home. Now the Lux Radio Theater curtain goes up once more. This time on I Love You Again. Starring Cary Grant as Larry Wilson and Myrna Loy as Kay. With Frank McHugh as Doc. You'll meet at least one on every ocean liner. He's usually found in the ship's lounge, drinking lemonade with the boys and talking about himself. He wears black suits and stiff collars, belongs to every club in his hometown, and never forgets his rubbers. He's a first-class bore. In our case, the bore is a certain Mr. Lawrence Wilson of Habersville, PA. At the bar of an ocean liner approaching New York Harbor, he's been boring three tired gentlemen for almost an hour. As yet, there's no sign of a let-up. Oh, yes, sir, gentlemen. That watch was given to me by the Habersville Chamber of Commerce. <coughs> Pretty fine watch, isn't it? Terrific. Well, uh, L.J. Hawksburg himself made the presentation. L.J. is one of the biggest men in our town. Now, I can remember every word he said. He said, it is my pleasure and privilege to present this token of our esteem to one of our first and foremost citizens, Lawrence Wilson, for his unfailing energy as chairman, as chaim- chairman he said, that's what he said, of the Habersville Morals and Clean Government Committee. Oh, fine, fine. Uh-huh. I'll bet you're some pumpkins back there in Hattersville. Uh, yeah, well, you know how it is. <clears throat> well, gentlemen, last night out, how about having a farewell drink with me? A Dutch treat, of course. Yes, I figured that one out. Oh, uh, Stuart, service, please. Yes, sir. 
Well, what'll it be, boys? Bourbon and soda. Make mine the same. All right, Stuart. <laughs> you know mine? Yeah, ginger ale and grape juice. Oh, come on now, Wilson. That's no drink. Oh, well, I'm sorry, fellas, but that's all I ever take. Hi, man. Hello, Ryan. Hi, fellas. Hi, Stuart. Fill her up. Hi, Wilson. How's the old sourpuss? <laughs> hey, Stuart, give the old sourpuss a drink. Thank you, Mr. Ryan, but I don't indulge. I don't indulge, eh? You're too good to drink with me, eh? I'm sorry. Good night, gentlemen. Come back here, you. Now, take it easy, Ryan. Mr. Wilson doesn't drink. I know. Grape Juice Wilson. But tonight, he does. Listen, Wilson, you've snooted me long enough on this boat. Take off that stuffed shirt. Come on. Knock me down. Mr. Ryan, you're inebriated. Oh, so I'm inebriated, huh? I'll show you from inebriated. I'll walk a straight line with anybody on this boat. With anybody on any boat. I'll even go out there in the deck and walk along the rail. Oh, now, here, here, Ryan. Don't go out on deck. Inebriated, huh? Oh, now, come back, Ryan. Come inside. Let me go. I'll show you. Oh, Ryan, Ryan, you fall overboard. Let me go. And I'm going to wait on that now, rail. listen, Ryan, old man. There, how's that? Right up on the rail. Oh, now, come down. You're too intoxicated to realize your peril. What's this one, Wilson? Tightrope walking. I can balance myself like it. Hey. Oh, hey. Oh, oh, now be careful. Hold me. I'm slipping. Hey, hey, let me go. Help. Oh, no, let go. Hey. Oh, oh. look out. We're both falling. Oh. Oh, oh. let go. Oh. Let go. Oh. Let go. Oh, oh. Help. Man overboard. Man overboard. Full speed astern. Man the lifeboat. Throw away there. Throw away. I saw it. I saw the whole thing. Mr. Ryan fell off the rail and Mr. Wilson jumped in to save him. Wilson, the grape juice man. He's a hero. Well, are the passengers all right, Doctor? I think they will be, Captain, but Mr. Wilson is still unconscious. Unconscious? Oh, he'll come around all right in the morning, Captain. He had a rather nasty blow on the temple. How did that happen? I'm not certain, but I believe when your men lowered the boat, one of your sailors hit him on the head with the oar. Mr. Oh. Stuff Wilson, old boy, open your eyes now. Oh, dear. Everything's fine. Wake up, pal. Oh, my. <clears throat> what happened? How do you feel, pal? Dizzy? Look at me, pal. It's your old friend, Ryan. Hmm? Ryan? You dirty rat. Come here. Oh, now, take it easy, pal. Take it easy. You slug me. No, no, pal. Honest, it wasn't me. It was a sailor with an oar. Huh? Sailor with a... Uh... Hey, wait a minute. This is a boat. I'm on a boat. What's the idea? Why was I taking off that train? What train? You know what train you double-crossing Wait the... a minute, look. Don't you remember me? Ryan, Doc Ryan, your Go old on. shipmate? I never saw you before in my life. Holy smoke, you sure knocked you goofy. Why, you saved my life last night. What do I want to do that for? Gee, I don't know. I don't remember much, Mr. Wilson. Huh? What's that you called me? Mr. Wilson. Your name? Look. Huh? Look, what's going on here? What's happened to me? Well, you took a dive for me last night when I fell overboard. You were socked in the head. You're a liar. I can't swim. Look, pal, I won't be a minute. The doctor's right down the corridor. Now sit down. Last night I was on my way to the fight in New York. What fight? What fight? Don't you read the papers? The shaggy smelling fight. Hey, hey, I must have missed it. I'll say you missed it by about nine years. Huh? Nine years? What date is this? Here, here's the ship's news. April 10th, 1941. Let me see that. 1941? It's a misprint. No, honest, pal. That's right. But, but, 
Oh, wait a minute. It was 1932 last night. Now, I've got to get the doctor. Now, sit down, sir. <laughs> I don't need a doctor. I need a drink. Okay, I'll ring for you. Ginger ale and grape juice. What? I want a drink, not a foot bath. Well, that's what you've been drinking. Buckets of it. What, ginger ale and grape juice? Well, there's no prohibition on these boats, is there? There's no more prohibition. Roosevelt did away with that. Roosevelt? Why, Teddy Roosevelt's no, been dead for... No, no. <laughs> I don't mean Teddy. I mean Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president. He's been elected three times. Oh, he's prisoner. Hmm. How's he doing? Fine. Look, Mr. Wilson, I'll no, go no, and get the... Why'd you keep calling me Wilson? My name's George Davis. George Davis? Hey, wait a minute. You're not the George Davis that was partners with Duke Sheldon in them con games. Mm, well, what if I am? Well, gosh, don't be that way. After all, we're in the same business. Oh, is that so? What's your racket? Oh, I've been kind of working the boats, you know. Cards, a few tricks with the dice. Say, I get it now. You've been working this boat yourself under the name of Wilson. Oh, what are you talking about? Last thing I remember is getting on that train in 1932 to go to the fight. You mean you ain't got no line on yourself since then? No, I can't. Wait a minute. Somebody slugged me on that train in the card game. Well, what's happened since then? Where have I been? Hey, there's a name for this thing. Name for what? Perhaps a memory, lost identity. Amnesia, that's it, amnesia. Is that what you got? No, it's what I've had. A blow on the head can make you forget the past. You live on as someone else. Perhaps forever, unless... Uh, well, unless another shock, a blow brings you back to your right self. Ah, marvelous. You read about these things, you never figure them happening to yourself. Say, uh, uh, what was this Wilson like? Oh, an awful heel. I like Davis better. Thanks. All you did, I mean, all Wilson did, was talk about Habersville. Habersville? Who's he? Not he, it. It's some burg in Pennsylvania. Never heard of it. Hey, uh, wonder if Mr. Wilson has any money. He should have. You were that, I mean, uh, Wilson was the closest mug I've ever seen. Oh, was he? Well, I think it might be a good idea to take an inventory of our Mr. Wilson's luggage. Say, it's funny, ain't it? Here we are talking about you and a guy named Wilson and you're both guys. Uh, look at this suit. I must have borrowed that from an undertaker. What's all this stuff? Harry Storis, saltine crackers, dyspepsia tablets? Look at that, a bottle of goggle. Say, I certainly took good care of Wilson. There's a lot of papers and stuff. Boy, <laughs> were you a joiner? Rotary, Elks, Owls, Community Chest, Primrose League. Wait a minute. What's it? A bank book. Oh, no, we're getting somewhere. Give it to me. Habersville National Bank. Lawrence Wilson checking account C. $147,000.83. Let me take a look at that. And that's the C account. That means there must be an A and B as well. It might even go right through the alphabet. Yeah. Say, uh, why wouldn't it be a good idea for Mr. Wilson to pay a visit to Happersville? Just long enough to get the money, huh? Do you think he can swing it? That's well, worth trying. There's a fortune in this thing. Hey, Doc, how'd you like to go in on it with me? Do you mean it? I'll cut you in for 25%. I'd have done it for 10 After all, you saved my life. Well, look, uh, I'm going to need some money. I think I'll send a radiogram to the Habersville National Bank. I'll tell them to send me five grand to the Whitney Hotel tomorrow morning when we land. 25% <laughs> of five grand? Oh, boy, what a cut. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. There's one thing, Doc. You've got to stick close to me. If anybody starts asking questions, if I seem to be getting into a tight spot, I'll pull a feint, and don't you forget to catch me. Trust me, pal. I'll be a regular Florence Nightingale. <laughs> Come on, Doc, snap it up. We go right to the hotel, see if they have a built bank and set that. Yoo-hoo! Well, well. What's the matter? Yoo-hoo, here I am. Oh, 
Oh, boy. get a load of that girl over there. There's a dish for you, huh? Wonder who she's waving to. Come on, come on. Keep your mind on your work. Huh, Larry? La hey, that's you. Oh, Larry, are you all right? Huh? For me? Well, sure, sure, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I, uh, how are you? Well, Larry, the papers all said you were injured. Oh, well, nothing serious. You know how papers are. Well, it certainly is good to see you. Yes, I know you're surprised. <laughs> surprised isn't the word. Uh, 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 Larry, uh... <laughs> Oh, excuse me, uh, this is Doc Ryan. Doc, this is, uh, uh, uh... <laughs> yes, sir. Good old Doc Ryan. <laughs> How are you, Dr. Ryan? Well, never met better, miss. Thanks to Larry. You know, Larry, Habersville is pretty proud of that rescue. Oh, Habersville, eh? Well, well, well. Good old Habersville. Mm, did you, uh, uh, did you just leave there? When I read you were hurt, I didn't know how seriously. Naturally, I had to come. Oh, well, naturally. Well, <laughs> well, it certainly is good to see you. Yes, so you said. I don't know. Well, it's worth repeating. Larry, you seem so strange. Who, me? Me? Oh, no, that's just because you haven't seen me for a while. Before you know it, uh, we'll be right back where we were. Larry, what in heaven's name is the matter with you? Nothing, why? I, uh, well, I'm just, uh, surprised to see you here. Well, what's so surprising about that? Habersville would think it very proper for a wife to meet her husband. Oh, I don't know about... Huh? Huh? Wife? Did you... Did she... Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> Larry, what is it? What's the matter? Oh, nothing, nothing at all. I'm fine. I'm just, uh... <laughs> I'm wonderful. Oh, no, no, you're not. You're sicker than you think. You need a lot of rest and oh, quiet. Oh, nonsense, nonsense. I never felt better in my life. I'll take you to your hotel. Huh? Oh, uh, sure. Oh, now, listen, Larry. Now, go away, Doc, go away. Can't a man speak to his own wife? And everything very satisfactory, sir. This suite is one of our very best. Sure, sure. Thank you very much. That's all for now. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, dear? Larry, a whole suite? It isn't like you. Oh, now the best is none too good for you, uh, Mrs. W. Mm. Well, uh, here we are, just us two. Cozy, isn't it? Uh, Larry, I'd like to talk a bit if you feel up to it. Oh, talk. Oh, talk, yes. <laughs> well, of course, uh, sit down, dear. If you don't mind, I'll sit over here. Uh, I don't know quite how to begin. Huh? Begin what? Well, I've had a long time to think things over, and I've decided once and for all to go through with the divorce. The divorce? Yes. Well, uh, uh... Oh, but now, wait, you can't do that. I've made up my mind, Larry. Yes, but a divorce, why, that, that that's awful. After all, we mustn't be too hasty about this thing. I wouldn't call five years exactly hasty. Mm -hmm. Some mightn't, some mightn't. Mm. You know, a thing like a divorce, well, it can break up a marriage. So I've heard. Now, now, what's more, very often what really seemed a good reason for a divorce isn't a good reason for a divorce at all. Now, uh, take, for instance, if I'd, uh, well, well, if I'd beaten you or something like that. <laughs> I'd like to see you try it. Well, then, uh, say I'd been uh, running around with some woman. You with a woman? Oh, don't be ridiculous. Oh, well, after all, you know, sometimes a vacation can change a man a lot, the sea air and all that. I'm afraid it'll take more than sea air to change you, Larry. Well, what's the matter with me? Look, 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 let's forget the divorce and try it just once more, starting from scratch, huh? It's too late, Larry. Nonsense, it's never too late. Why, I'll tell you what we'll do. There's someone at the door. Oh, that's all right, ignore it. Go away. You might as well answer it, Larry. I'm leaving anyway. Oh, but listen. I'll be at the Shorehaven until tomorrow if you want to get the Oh, hello, Mrs. Wilson. Why, Mrs. Wilson. Oh, Mrs. Billings, how are you? Oh, couldn't be keener, thanks. I'm just leaving. I'll probably be seeing you, though. Yeah, I hope so. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye. Oh, wait, don't go. <laughs> goodbye, Larry. 
Well, well, Mr. Wilson, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with you. That's what you think. <laughs> Say, Larry, I met Mr. Billings in the lobby. He came all the way from the Habersville National Bank. That's right. Bank? Bank. Oh, <laughs> well, well, Mr. Billings, how are you? <laughs> it couldn't be keener, thanks. Well, shall we get right down to business? Oh, yes, indeedy. I got your wireless, Mr. Wilson, and uh, here's your money. Uh, <laughs> 5000 uh, 5000 Here you are, sir. Well, well, I call that service. Me too. <laughs> now, now, let me see. These 5000 here make you 2700 overdrawn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Overdrawn? Well, when, when you went away, you had a deposit with us, $2,800. Uh-huh. Then we paid 500 for you on that plot of land at Marsh's subdivision. <laughs> oh, by the way, here's your deed for that. <laughs> and, uh, and I owe the bank $2,700? Uh-huh. Oh, but the bank was only too glad to accommodate you. Uh, well, uh, what about those other accounts, the uh, B&C accounts? Oh, oh, those. Well, those are separate. Oh, well, fine. Go ahead. <laughs> well, here we are. In the C account, we have $147,000.83. Yes. <laughs> Look, would, uh, would you repeat that, please, sort of uh, slowly? Oh, sure. <laughs> $147,000.83. <laughs> that's the community chest account. Huh? <laughs> I said that's the community chest account. Naturally, all checks drawn on that have to be countersigned by Mr. Sims. Miss Breathway, two directors of the fund, and yourself. Oh. What about the National Guard? Don't they have to sign them, too? <laughs> well, now, in the B account, which is the Anti-Vice League Fund, we have... Uh, the the oh. Anti-Vice League. Uh, uh-huh. uh, I think I'd rather not know how much we have there. Oh, well, well, just you say, Mr. Wilson. Well, I'd better run along. I trust I've made everything clear. Oh, terribly clear. Give my greetings to Mr. Sims and Miss Breathway. Oh, you? I will indeed. I w- uh, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Um, uh, the more I learn about Larry Wilson, the more I like termites. Raising all that good dough for the anti-vice league. You certainly were a stinker. Uh, wasn't I? <laughs> oh. Wait a minute. Now, Larry Wilson may be a dope, but in Habersville, he's trusted and respected, huh? Sure. A guy that raises thousands of dollars for a chest certainly ought to be able to raise a little for himself. Uh, let's see. Mm. That's Pennsylvania. How about oil? There's a lot of money in oil. Oh, we'll do it, Doc. We'll locate Duke Sheldon. He specializes in oil. We'll wire him to meet us down there. Wait a minute. What about your wife? Huh? Oh, my wife. Oh, dear. She's divorcing me. I meet a girl, in 20 minutes she's divorcing me. Now, Canada, do that. I need her more than ever now. What for? Well, with a divorce going on, Larry Wilson couldn't sell peanuts in a town like that. Now, where's my coat? Where are you going? To the Shorehaven. To call on the little woman. Who is it? Open this door. Take it easy. Open the door, I'll smash it down. Hey, what's the idea? Where is she? Where are you hiding her? Kay? Kay? Hey, who are you? You know very well who I am. Do uh, What I mean is, uh, who do you think you are? Where is she, Larry? Come on. Well, where's who? You know who. Where's Kay? She was here with you. Oh, was that Kay? Shut up. She's been here. I looked at the register. Oh, did you now? Yes, Lawrence Wilson and White. That's how you signed it, you dirty sneak. What do you mean by that? After all, she is my wife, isn't she? Yes, she may be your wife, but she's engaged to me. Holy smoke! Engaged to you? Now, wait. Why should Kay want to divorce me? Answer me that. You know why. Oh, do I? I mean, uh, well, of course I do, but do you? I'll say I do, and so does everybody who knows you. Why, it's written all over you. Kay wasn't married to you. Kate McQueen, Kate McQueen. She was married to the Rotary, the Kiwanis, the Lions, and the Greater Habersville Committee. Boy, is that bigamy. Will you please get rid of your wisecracking stooge? We'll settle this thing between the two of us. There's nothing to settle. Things and people have changed. 
All bets are off. From now on, it's every man for himself. You promised Kay a divorce. I might have known you wouldn't keep your word, you dirty double-crossing. Oh, you've been asking for this. And you ask for this. I guess you forgot I was the amateur champ of Boonton County. Well, so long, Larry. All right, pal. Come on now. Wake up, pal. Wake up. Oh, dear. Boy, are you going to have a shiner. Oh, my. Well, he might at least have told me his name. Now, get me up. Where's the phone? What for? I'm going to call my wife. You don't think I'm going to take this lying down, do you? You were doing pretty well just a minute ago. <laughs> I'm going to call her and take her out to dinner. And just let that guy try to interfere, that's all. A husband has some rights in this state. Champagne. Good old bubbly. Hmm? Nothing like it, is there, dear? Have some more? Thank you, I've had enough. And if you ask me, Wilson, so have you. Who asked you? Look, darling, did you have to bring your bodyguard along with us? Herbert and I are engaged, Larry. Oh, yes, Herbert, and you are engaged. Hmm. That's what he said this morning, didn't you, Herbert? Now, look here, Wilson. Kay and I came here tonight for only one reason. We want to know what you're going to do about the divorce. Divorce? Oh, Kay can have the divorce. She can? Yes, in a month or six weeks. But I am opposed to this unseemly haste. Somebody might get the idea my wife didn't like me. Oh, you can't fool me, Wilson. It's not Kay you're thinking of. It's the Chamber of Commerce. Huh? Of course, I might have known. Six weeks, you said. And by an odd coincidence, that happens to be the date set for the election for president of the Chamber of Commerce. Oh, now, wait. No wonder you ordered the best suite in town and dining here tonight at the most expensive restaurant. Everything you've done since you got off that boat. All for the Chamber of Commerce. Oh, well, not all. Honestly, Kay. You're just afraid a divorce will hurt your chances. But I'm not going to ruin my life so you can win an election. I should say not. Mm, very well, then. Unless Kay comes back to Habersville with me for six weeks and palms herself off as my devoted and loving wife, I'll fight the case. I would feel it my duty. If he feels it's his duty, Herbert, we're sunk. Mm. You'll have to give in. Herb, you're taking my wife. The least you can do is give me the Chamber of Commerce. Well, all right, you win. Mm, thanks, Herb. <laughs> I believe this is your hotel, Wilson. That's right. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, Herb. Well, good night, Kay, dear. Good night, Larry. Uh, <clears throat> Kay, uh, do you think uh, that is if Herbert doesn't mind, if I kissed you goodbye? Now, now, listen. It's all right, Herbert. It doesn't mean anything. Oh, that's right. Not a thing. I just mean this way a little, dear. <laughs> oh, go on. Lift your hat a little. <laughs> well, that's the girl. <laughs> all right, Wilson. That's enough. I said that's enough. Now look here, Wilson. Say, what do you think this is? Now cut it off. Let her go. For heaven's sakes. Doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> well, farewell, Kay, and don't look back. It'll be easier. So long, Herb. <laughs> Mr. DeMille presents Act Two of I Love You Again, starring Myrna Loy, Cary Grant, and Frank McHugh. Now I'm going to ask Lou Silvers to play a march for us. All right, Lou? <laughs> a march? You wouldn't get very far if you traveled at that rate of speed. Well, now listen to this. Now that's more like it. Yes. It's three times as fast. And that illustrates one important fact about new quick looks. 
It's three times as fast. In water as cool as your hand, new Quick Lux gives you suds three times as fast as any of ten other leading soaps. Not just twice as fast, three times as fast. That's one reason so many women prefer Lux Flakes, Mr. Ruick. Yes, indeed, Sally. And there are other reasons. Of course. We know we can count on Lux for purity. That's right, Sally. You see, some soaps contain harmful alkali, which weakens fabrics and fades colors. But new Quick Lux hasn't a bit of harmful alkali. It's safe for anything safe in plain water. And a little goes so far, it's thrifty, too. No wonder twice as many women use Lux Flakes for stockings, underthings, sweaters, and nice dresses. Twice as many as use any other flakes, chips, or beads. Buy a big box of new Quick Lux Flakes tomorrow for your pretty washing. It's fast, thrifty, and so gentle that it keeps things new looking longer. You'll find new Quick Lux at your grocers in the same familiar package at no extra cost to you. We pause now for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. of I Love You Again, starring Myrna Loy as Kay and Cary Grant as Larry, with Frank McHugh as Doc. Larry Wilson, amnesia victim and confidence man extraordinary, is piecing together the jigsaw puzzle of a life he doesn't remember. And with a wife like Kay as one of the principal parts, he's looking forward to finishing the picture. Traveling by separate compartments, they've taken the train back home to Habersville, but to avoid gossip, they get off arm in arm with Doc Ryan, two steps to the rear. Ah, Habersville. Good old Habersville. Why, the very air smells different in Habersville. That's the glue factor. Oh. Hey, Larry, look. It's a welcome committee. Oh, for me? Of course, you know you're a hero. Hiya, Larry! Oh, hiya, Larry! Hiya, Larry! Well, it's great to be back. Oh, Larry, Larry, darling, let me see you. Oh, hello. Oh, Larry, I'm so proud. Let me kiss you, darling. Hey, stay, stay. I got the wife for being our scramb, eh? Oh, dear. Hello, Mother. Hey, darling. Mother? Oh, oh, Mother. Well, well, how are you, Mother? Doesn't she look wonderful, Kay? My mother usually looks all right. Uh, oh, your mother? Sure. Well, that's what I mean. She looks fine. You're looking wonderful yourself. But you've changed, Larry. Oh, what is well, it? vacation, you know. Nothing like a vacation to change a man. Larry, here's Mayor Carver. Oh, hello, my boy. Welcome home. Well, well. <laughs> Hello, Mayor Carver. How's the old chief executive? Habersville's mighty proud of you, my boy. And here's Habersville's highest award, the key to our city. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, folks. And now, Larry, it's my proud privilege to present a gift on behalf of the municipal band, a solid silver bugle. Well, thank you, Mayor. Much obliged, fellas. And now I hope you lead us all in singing the Habersville town song. Your own brilliant composition. Huh? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Well, yes, of course. Well, Larry, suppose <laughs> you start us off with the fanfare on your new bugle. Uh, 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 fanfare? I mean, uh, uh, fanfare on the bugle? That's uh, it. Go right ahead now, uh, son. Get behind me quick. <clears throat> well, uh, well, here we go. <laughs> now, you see, you see, I, 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 oh, oh, oh. Larry, oh, good oh, evening, oh, Everybody, please. He just couldn't stand all this happiness. Get an ambulance. 
Larry. Larry, are you asleep? Oh, come in, Mother. What time is it? It's after ten. Feel better? Oh, I feel fine. Uh, where's Kay? In her room. Hmm? Now, Larry, about Kay. I know the whole story, and it's ridiculous. Yes, well, I hope you brought her to her senses, Mother. Not yet, but I will. Good old Mother. When? The idea. You in this room, her over there across the hall for a whole year. Mm. I don't know how you could do such a thing. Oh, well, neither do I. Mm, but we're going to change all that. I've come to stay for a while. I'm taking the porch room, which should have been a nursery long ago. Oh, mother. Don't, don't argue. Well, who's arguing? But you can't win Kay back with a stuffed squirrel. Uh, huh? A stuffed what? Those animals you're always stuffing. You've got to stop it, Larry. I've been stuffed. Mother, believe me, I'll never stuff another animal as long as I live. <laughs> now you better try to get some sleep. All right. Good night, Monty. Good night. Hey, hey, King. Yes? It's me, Larry. What do you want? Uh, well, I, uh, I'm hungry. Go over to the rice box. Oh, oh, well, all right, dear, don't you bother. I'll get my own food. That is, if I don't faint again before I get there. Well, good night, dear. All right, wait a minute. Would you like some eggs? Well, more than anything in the world. Almost. Well, come on down to the kitchen. Okay. Okay, you don't know what this means to me. Never mind the sentiment. We're going down for eggs. Here you are, darling. More toast? No. Champagne? No. Coffee? A little. Ah, good. You know, I can't get over it. The last time we had champagne in this house was three years ago on New Year's Eve. And the boss came to dinner. And even that was a bottle my mother gave us for Christmas. Well, I wish you'd forget about the past, Kay. The fact of the matter is, I've changed quite a bit lately. Oh, no, not you, <laughs> You couldn't change any more than one of your stuffed owls could change. Oh, but Kay... No, I feel awfully good. Awfully, awfully good. <laughs> you do? <laughs> oh, well, that's fine. Here, uh, um, let me fill up your cup. You know, I'm sort of sorry. Uh, sorry? <laughs> I'm sort of sorry I'm not in love with you anymore. Because if I were still in love with you, I'd be awfully in love with you right now. <laughs> Kay, Kay, I'd like to show you the most wonderful game of two-handed post office. I think I'd better drink my coffee now. Yeah, but listen, Kay, how about the post... Listen, we'd better have an understanding. I'm in this house simply because of our agreement. Uh -huh. To convince the general public that I'm still your wife. Well, all right, convince me. I'm one of the public. That strikes me as a pretty foul thing to say about the public. Okay, you're certainly making me pay for those scrambled eggs. You're not even eating them. Well, I'm not hungry. Oh, you're not. Uh, that is, I mean, uh, well... Oh, you're not hungry. I see. You got me out of bed and spoiled my sleep, but you're not hungry. Well, I'm not really, I guess. You don't want to eat your nice scrambled eggs? No, dear. Then how would you like to wear them over your ears? Kate! Good night. Hello, Mrs. Wilson. How's my patient? In Hi, Larry. How'd you make out with her? Just dandy. Hey, what have you got in your head? Scrambled eggs. What do you think? <laughs> I didn't know. No. What'd you find out in town? It's pie. Uh -huh. The town's loaded with dough. Just right for an oil boom. Hey, not so loud. Did you phone the hotel? Yeah, Sheldon just got in. He's going to plant the oil tomorrow. Good. Now, uh, now, what about me? You're the manager of a big pottery works here. Oh, I make pots? Yeah. You may not have any money, but you've certainly got plenty of pots. Oh, <laughs> pots. That's just what I've always wanted, a whole lot of pots. 
Welcome back, Mr. Wilson. The office hasn't been the same without you. Oh, thank you, boys. Thank you very much. Right now, we've all got our little jobs to attend to. That's right, boys. On the job now. Oh, say, Mr. Wilson, I've got some great news. Seventy hours from kill to shipping. Oh, fine. Now, uh, shall we bear down on the jigger wheel or on the pug mill? Uh, uh, oh, on the uh, bugger wheel. <laughs> By all means. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Wilson, your wife is here. Yeah, my wife. Oh, my wife, yes. Well, send her in. Outside, everybody. To your jobs, please. Well, uh, hello, Kay. Hello, Larry. What would you like to hit me with this morning? I can recommend the inkwell. <laughs> the inkwell, right there. I'm not going to apologize. You were terribly aggravating. Oh, well, then I'll apologize. I should have ducked. Larry, it's the 15th. Hmm? Well, certainly it's the 15th. By all means, the 15th. That means tomorrow is the 16th. Oh, dear. <laughs> what? Something wrong? It's just continually amazing to me the things you can think of to keep from writing a check. A check? Oh, yeah, the 15th, yes. I guess we've established that, all right. Well, now, just slip a mind, Kay. All the excitement of getting home, you know, and... Uh, well, now, let me see now. That, uh, that would be how much? You know perfectly well how much. And don't try to tell me that slipped your mind. What? Well, no, certainly not. Now, uh, mm, uh, well, what about $200? What? Well, just for the time being, of course. If you run short, just call on me. Well, don't wake me up. Let me dream. Well, goodbye. I'm going shopping. Oh, no. We're going shopping. You need a man's advice. No, thanks. The last time I went shopping with you, I ended up in a cut-price Mother Hubbard. Yes, yes, and today you may end up in a creation by Charmaine. Come on. Just a minute. Where did you learn about Charmaine? Hmm? Oh, uh, uh, I read about it on the boat. I see. Do you know how much a Charmaine creation might cost? Oh, about a hundred, two hundred. What's the difference? Larry, do you mind if I just faint quietly? Uh-huh. Tea. Ah, yes, tea. Nothing like tea after a hard day's shopping, is there? Just look at the rain out there. And here we sit warm and cozy. I love this place. Well, so do I. Now, look, uh, you see those tea leaves? You want your fortune told? Please. Well, uh, here we go. <clears throat> I, uh, I see someone in your life. It's a man. No. Mm, yes, it is. It's a tall, dashing, handsome man with a striped tie, just like mine. Go on. Well, isn't that enough? He's tall, he's handsome, and uh, very dashing. That's what puzzles me, the dashing. It's there, all right, and I don't understand it. Oh, nothing at all. Give me your cup. I tell fortunes, too. All right. Well, uh, well, see anybody I know? Mm-hmm. It's a woman. Wonderful. What does she look like? Suppose you tell me. Well, uh, she's about five foot five, lovely complexion, hair just like yours. Seriously, Larry, I'd like to know what she's like. Who? The woman. The one who taught you about Charmaine and dancing and, and being dashing? Oh, uh, oh, her. Where'd you meet her, on the boat? Uh, yes, sort of. Of course, if you don't want to talk about it. Well, no, there's really not much to talk about. I mean, uh, nothing's really happened yet. Oh, but it will, Larry. I'm sure of it. Honey, honey, if you're sure of it, that's good enough for me. I know it's none of my business, but, uh, I've been worried that you might have changed like this, you know, to please me and maybe patch things up. But of of course, that's out of the question. My plans are all made with Herbert. Oh, Herbert. <laughs> should have stuffed Herbert. That's all I should have done. <laughs> Herbert. Have you ever taken a good look at Herbert? Now, listen here, Larry. Don't spoil everything. Why, you can take a good look at him now. He's just outside the window making faces at us. Look at the poor man. Oh, my goodness. I had a date with Herbert. He'll never forgive me standing out there in the rain. Poor thing. Goodbye, Larry. Wait, wait. You can have him clean the press. You look just as good as new. Oh, keep quiet. Uh 
Grandmother, dear. Larry, listen. Herbert's been here all evening. He just left. I don't like it. Well, neither do I, Mother, but what can I do? You can go and speak to Kay about it. Yeah. Where is she? In her room. And if you have to, kick in the door. Oh, Mother, you pioneer woman. <laughs> See you later. It's me, Larry. Open the door or I'll kick it down. What? Open the door. You hear me? It is open. Oh. Oh! <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> hello. I, <laughs> I thought it was locked. Well, suppose it had been. I would have kicked it down. What for? Well, <laughs> so I could come in. Larry, I've just spent two hours straightening things out with Herbert. Don't you think you've gotten me into enough trouble for today? No. Sometimes you remind me of a high school boy on a street corner, whistling at girls. Mm, well, it's romantic to whistle at the opposite sex. Birds do it. Lovebirds. Lovebirds don't whistle. They coo. They do, too, so whistle. Sort of a low cooing whistle, like this. Gets you, doesn't it? <laughs> Not particularly. Oh, it gets me. I once knew of a case where a female lovebird locked a male lovebird out of her nest. He stood outside and cooed for hours. Oh, it's pitiful. Poor fellow. Finally, lost his temper and kicked the door of the cage down. And what do you think the female lovebird did then? Gave him a sharp peck at the base of the skull. Not at all. She put her soft little wing around him inside. And laid him an egg. Okay, I haven't done anything. Oh, you haven't. You've done everything you could think of to make me miserable. Okay, what have I done? I suppose you didn't take me out and buy me the most expensive clothes in town. Oh, is that bad? And I suppose you didn't say nice things and pay me dozens of compliments and try your best to please me. You were just as nice and sweet and kind as you could be, and you know it. Oh, well, when you put it that way, I guess I've been a heel. <laughs> You're not getting anywhere, and I wish you'd stop it. Hmm? I want you to be yourself. Your owl-stuffing, speech-making, pompous old self. Oh, well, now, let's get this clear. You're upset because I'm acting as though I found you lovely. Yes. But you are lovely. There you go again. Oh, well, I was only... Larry! Now, I've got something to tell you, and I don't want you to say another word. Not a word? Just keep quiet, understand? Well, all right. You said before that I was lovely, mm -hmm. attractive mm -hmm. to you. Well, that's not so. It's your pride, that's all. You're losing me, so suddenly I seem worth holding on to. But it isn't me. It's just the idea of ever giving up anything that ever belonged to you. You don't love me, and you never did. Public opinion is the only thing you love. Public opinion, public buildings, public positions. That's why I resent your attentions, and that's why my door is going to stay locked as long as I'm in this house. Now, if you've got anything to say, please make it short. Oh. <laughs> oh, you get out of here. Oh, no, gosh, Kay, there's nothing to cry about. I was only... Oh, please go away. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, our producer, Mr. DeMille. The curtain rises on the third act of I Love You Again. There's no use arguing with Kay Wilson because her mind's made up. The door's been closed on Larry and he's shut out of her life. In his office the next morning, Larry has decided to go through with his oil swindle and call it quits. It's 
a cinch, pal. Duke's got an option on all the land surrounding yours. Now, here's the map. Mm -hmm. Is that my name there? That's it, Marsh Creek. Marsh Creek, huh? What about the oil? Duke planted it all over the place. It's oozing up through the creek to beat the band. But nobody's given it a tumble yet. Say, it might take weeks for anybody to see it out there in that jungle. Yeah, well, we'd have to fix that somehow. Marsh Creek, huh? Have to get the yokels down there. Did you get a line on any of them? Did I? Take a look at this. All the big income tax brackets. Mm-hmm. Leonard Hawksburg. Boom. Look at that. An income of 210 grand. Edward Littlejohn, 131,000. If we could only get a couple of these old boys to go swimming in that creek. Yeah, swimming in oil up to their necks. How are we going to do it? Oh, Mr. Wilson. Uh, yes, Miss, uh, Miss, uh... Is it all right for Corporal Bellison now? Uh, what do you mean, is it all right? It's Thursday, you know. Oh, that's right, so it is. <laughs> who is Corporal Bellinson? Oh, who is Corporal Bellinson? You tell him, Miss, uh... Why, he has uh, a ranger medallion, two silver stars, and a community stripe. Then? You don't say. You may come in, Corporal. Good morning, sir. Corporal Bellinson reporting to Scout Leader Wilson. Scout Leader? Who's that scout leader? <laughs> Good morning, Corporal. Mr. Wilson, the troop is very proud of you, sir. That rescue at sea. Well, thank you. It's 2 o'clock, Mr. Wilson. The troop's outside already. Where are they going? Well, that's up to Mr. Wilson. Oh, he can't go this morning. Wait, it's Hawksburg's test today, sir. It is out of the question. Uh, 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 wait, did you say Hawksburg? Oh, yes, sir. What, you mean uh, <clears throat> Leonard Hawksburg's little boy? Sure, Junior. He's been waiting for you to get back to take the test for first-class ranger. And so is little John. Uh, uh, little, little John, oh. eh? Well, of course, yes. Oh, well, I've worked out a special test for today, a sort of a test by Walter. You remember, Doc, we were just talking about the water test? Of course, very interesting. Oh, that's splendid, sir. But first, how about shooting the buck? All right, I'll fade it. Dr. Ryan. <laughs> I'm ashamed of you, Corporal. Gambling at your age. What? <clears throat> this morning, Corporal, we have a new test. Brand new. Really, sir? Yes, indeed, the swimming test. Tell the men we're leaving in ten minutes for uh, Marsh Creek. Mr. Wilson, sir. Yes, Corporal? We've just taken the test, sir, and I'd like to report that the whole troop is all over tar. Tar? Well, where did you get tar on you? In the creek, sir. Oh, Corporal, this is terrible. Tell the troop to report to their homes. I imagine their fathers will find a way to take it off. Troop 7, report home and get the tar washed off. Well, come in, Mr. Hawksburg. Come in, gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> Sit right down. How are you, Larry? Fine. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Ryan. Mr. Hawksburg, doctor. How are you? How do you do? This is Mr. Littlejohn, Mr. Bell. How do you do, sir? Well, gentlemen, to what do I owe this visit? <clears throat> Larry, I'll come right to the point. The responsible element of this town wants to do something concrete to show our appreciation for what you've done for Haversley. Oh, come now, gentlemen. I've done nothing. You've done a lot, Larry. Of course, my boy. And this is what we've decided to do. You own a piece of land here near Mars Creek. Yes, I believe I do. Well, the state is building a new highway through the suburbs, and we've brought some pressure to see that it runs out through your land. We can take it off your hands at a good profit. Well, now, that's awfully decent of you. I only paid 2500 for that piece, you know. Now, what would you say to a check for $10,000, a cool profit of 7500 Why? Why, that's 300% of my investment. Oh, it's too much. We feel you've got it coming to you, Larry. Of course, oh, my boy. You make me feel like a profiteer. Not at all, not Excuse at all. Excuse me, gentlemen. Somebody at the door. Well, Larry, my boy, what do you say? Well, it's a deal, gentlemen. Splendid. I've got a check right here. Oh, I've got the deed right here someplace. <laughs> I must see Mr. Wilson at once, sir. It's a matter of the utmost importance. But he's busy. Can't be disturbed. He can and will be disturbed. Now, just a minute, you. Stand aside, sir. Sorry to intrude, gentlemen. Which one of you is Mr. Wilson? Well, uh, I am Mr. Wilson, sir. Thank you. My name is Sheldon, Colonel E.J. Sheldon. Oh, well, uh, how do you do, Colonel? Mr. Wilson, I'll be brief. You're owner of Marsh's subdivision, I believe. Oh, yes. 
Splendid. I'm prepared to make you a handsome offer for that land, $25,000. Uh, what? You mean that? I am not in the habit of joking, sir. Oh, well, Colonel Shelton must have heard about the new road. New road? I know of no road. I'm in the gravel business, Mr. Wilson, and your land contains valuable deposits of this substance. Uh, gravel on my land? Why, it's ridiculous. Of course it is. Larry, we'll match his offer, dollar for dollar. Mm, you will? Why, that's wonderful. Yes, indeed. Larry, what are you doing? Are you selling the lot you own? No, not yet, Kay, but it looks like I will. You know what's on the land? Uh, well, yes, dear. Yes, I know all about the gravel deposits. Gravel deposits? My foot. It's oil. Huh? Oh, just oil. a wild rumor. Just a wild rumor, I'm sure. It These isn't things a wild rumor. And... This is oil. Gobs of it. I just heard about it. Oil. Colonel Sheldon, you've no right to come in and try to swindle one of our town's leading citizens. Uh, of course Permit not. me to inform you that I have options on all the surrounding land. I'll give you 100000 for a half interest in your property, Mr. Wilson. Now, look here, Colonel oh, Sheldon. I couldn't think of it. My final offer is 200000 Now, wait a minute. Uh, Colonel Sheldon, suppose we buy you out. With what? With hard cash. How much do you want for your option? I own four parcels. I'll take 50000 each. All right, it's a deal. We'll meet later tonight and sign all the papers. Yeah, yes, do. indeed. That was great work, pal. A clean profit of 200,000 smackers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what happened to Kay? Kay? Oh, I saw her go out a minute ago with a letter in her hand. Say, that reminds me. How did she know about the oil? That's what I want to find out. Okay, okay. Wait a second. Hello, Larry. Uh, if your arm is going my way, I'll give it a lift. Thanks. Well, I deduce from your lack of hat as well as the envelope in your hand that you're going to mail a letter. Yes, to Herbert. Mm -hmm. I'm still so mad I could explode. Those crooks pretending to be your friends. And Herbert's no better. He acted as though I were a common thief. Thought I ought to be glad of a chance to pick a pocket legally. Oh, so that was how you knew him. Yes, Herbert came to me. He wanted me to get the land from you. Larry, you're the only honest one in the whole crowd. <laughs> me? You're really too good for this town. Uh, no, not really. Oh, here's the mailbox. And that's that. Uh, <laughs> exit Herbert? Exit Herbert. Oh. I want to walk. Let's go up on top of the hill, shall we? Delighted. Isn't it a lovely view from here? Yeah. Yes, certainly worth the climb. Larry, don't tell me you've forgotten this place. Huh? Oh, forgot? Oh, no. How could I forget it? It was right about here. No, no. I would have said it was a little more to the left. I think you're right. Remember what you said? Uh, vaguely. You said, Kay, darling, marriage is the soundest investment two people can make. Ooh. Did I say... Oh. Kay, whatever made you marry me? Well, I felt that underneath that watch chain with all its large pins and trophies, there was another person, an exciting person, the sort of man I dreamt about marrying. Yes, he wasn't really there, though, was he? Oh, yes. But I didn't find him for a long time. I'm sorry I didn't find him sooner. Oh, now, don't apologize for what you thought about me. You were right. You're still right. I was terribly wrong. But I was afraid of falling in love with you again. Ah, uh, well, if you were afraid then, you should be twice as afraid now. I don't understand that, Larry. Well, darling, I hope you never will. Well, I'd better be getting back. Come on, let's go. Wait a minute. You make me sick, Larry. Huh? If there's anything that turns my stomach, it's a man who acts noble. Noble? You know darn well you love me. You're just being noble and giving me up because something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to find out. Oh, now, Kay, wait. Ever since you got off that boat, you've been chasing me like, like an amorous goat. You've been trying your darndest to make me fall in love with you. And now you have. 
Now, I'm going to do the chasing. And believe me, brother, before I'm through, you're going to know you've been chased. Kiss me. Well? Oh, I know it right now. <laughs> Gotta get over to Duke's room. All those big shots are gonna be there. Larry, what's the matter with you? Doc, how'd you like to work in my pottery mill? What's the angle? Making pots. What do you think? A chance to eat regularly and sleep regularly. Maybe have a little home of your own with a porch in the garden. Gee, sounds wonderful. Well, I'm glad you like it, Doc, because that's what we're going to do. What? You're crazy. We can't stay here after the oil deal. Uh, you know, you're not very quick today, Doc. The oil deal is off. Huh? What, uh, uh, what about the Duke? Oh, yeah, there's Duke to consider. I don't think Duke cares much for home and the kiddies. He's just a wee bit mercenary. Yeah, and he likes money, too. <laughs> However, I may as well get it over with. It may be a tough fight, but I'm not afraid. Not much I'm not. Don't do it, Larry. I seen you fighting one fight and you were awful. I, I tell you, he'll tear you to bits. He'll cripple you. He'll chew your head off. Let me go with you, just in case. No, thanks, Doc. This is my job. I'll phone you when it's over, if I'm able. Larry, Larry, wait, Listen. He'll be murdered. He'll be... Mrs. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson, where are you? What do you mean the deal's off? What kind of a double cross have you and Ryan cooked up? Well, I'm through with rackets, Duke, that's all. You're not through with this one. Look, friend, this has been a hard winter. I haven't made a killing in months. If this is a rib, stop it, because it's not funny. It's not a rib, Duke, and it's not a double cross. I'm staying here in Habersville with my wife. Save your breath, pal. This moonlight and roses, who he don't fool me. You and that dame are up to something. You're wrong. She doesn't know a thing about it. Hello, darling. What? What? Kay! She don't know, huh? Kay, what are you doing here? It's all right, Larry. I've just had a talk with Dr. Ryan. He told me everything about you. What? Larry, I had to let her in. I just couldn't help it. Shut up. Kay, I want you to go home. Nobody's going home. Now, she's got nothing to do with this, Duke. Let her go. My friend, I'm going to brain you. You overgrown bull, don't you dare lay a hand on him. Shut your trap, madam. <laughs> now, you listen to me, Wilson. If you and this Tootsie want to play house when we get the cash, okay. But this car goes right to the end of the line and nobody gets out till it gets there. You can't give me orders, you crook. That's right, lady. I'm a crook. What do you think he is, a Bible salesman? I don't care if he was an axe murderer. That's all finished. I've seen him in love before. It usually lasts four to six weeks. That's a lie. Lady, generally speaking, I never sock a dame. But I'm inclined to make an exception for you. All right, Duke. You asked for it. Ooh. Okay, pal, just slip this on for size. <coughs> oh, how dare you? You've killed him. I hope so. Water. Give him water. Oh, get the water pitcher. Oh, Larry. Larry, darling. Look at me. Here's the water. <laughs> I'm drowning. Oh, Larry, my poor darling. Kay. But Kay, how did you get on the boat? Oh, this is all your fault, Ryan. Your drunken behavior was inexcusable. Hey, it's coming back. Lie still, darling. Don't talk. You'll be all right in a minute. All right, Davis, get up and quit stalling. Uh, Davis. Were you addressing me, sir? What do you think? Well, I'm afraid I don't know you. Holy Ike, he's back again. <laughs> Wait a minute. This isn't the boat. What's happened? Is he loony? Did I knock him goofy? Worse. You've ruined everything. What am I going to do with him now? Davis. George, don't you know me? Dukey. Duke Sheldon. Huh? Oh, Duke Sheldon? Well, I'm very flattered to meet you, Your Highness. Oh, what do we do? 
You think of something. You socked him. Oh, look, pal, pull yourself together. We got a big deal on. Oh, well, if you'll call in my officer, I'll be glad to show you our full line of pots. Pots? The guy's nuts. I'm getting out of here. Now, listen, you Get can't... out of my way. I'm getting out. Goodbye, Your Highness. Oh, let me out. Come back here. You hear me? You can't get away with this. Oh, Larry. Larry, darling. Yes, dear? You... You've forgotten everything, haven't you? Of course not. I mean, when he hit you, you're Lawrence Wilson again. Uh, do you suppose if you got hit on the head again, you might be George Davis? Hey, wait, put down that vase. I've got to do it, darling. No, 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 listen, listen to me. Well? Kay, dear, Kay. Well? (laughs) Darling. Here's Mr. DeMille with our stars. The spotlight turns to Manaloy and Cary Grant again. We'll just say, we love them again, and I love you again. I'll bet he says that to all the actors, Myrna. I thought it was very nice. Thank you, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> it's been a long time since we worked together, Cary. Years, isn't it? Yeah, five to be exact. Let's see, that makes our date next date on uh, Monday, 1946, isn't it? Mm, it'll be a Monday, <laughs> all right. <laughs> a Monday night in the Lux Radio Theater, but it won't be five years. What, Mr. DeMille? You want us to come back right away? Right away, Carrie. You like the performance that much? That much and more. Oh, well, now, why don't you save yourself a lot of bookkeeping, C.B., and pay us both for the, uh, for both jobs right now, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'd better call you in 1946, Carrie. (laughs) What's your play here next week, Mr. DeMille? Next week, Myrna, we've scheduled one of the most exciting combinations of mystery and glamour that the screen has ever produced. The play is... Algiers. And the stars are Charles Boyer and Hedy Lamar. <laughs> You'll hear Charles... <laughs> You'll hear Charles Boyer as Pepe Lamoco. <laughs> the same great role... <laughs> the same great role he played in the Walter Wanger picture. And you'll hear Hedy Lamar as the girl who found an irresistible attraction in the man who lived outside the law. You're all invited to sail for Algiers next Monday night, and I hope nobody will miss the boat. Well, that sounds swell, C.B. Good night. Good night. (laughs) Good night. Good night. An A-plus for both of you. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Charles Boyer and Hedy Lamar in Algiers. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying goodnight to you from Hollywood. Manaloy appeared tonight through the courtesy of Metro-Golden-Mare and is currently seen on the screen in their production of Love Crazy. Cary Grant has just finished making the RKO production Before the Fact, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and Frank McHugh is now appearing in the Warner Brothers picture Manpower. Included in tonight's play were Arthur Q. Bryan as Duke Sheldon, Jack Arnold as Herbert, Jane Morgan as mother, Dix Davis as Corporal Bellinson, and Ferdinand Meunier, Ralph Sedan, Earl Ross, Tyler McVeigh, and Betty Ventura. Our music is directed by Louis Silvers, and your announcer has been Melville Ruick. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
I Love You Again, with two-thirds of the original movie cast, Cary Grant was the ringer filling in for William Powell, from the Lux Radio Theater, just over five months before the United States entered World War II. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. We're going to close with a surrender. We give up. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day, and try as we might, we can't resist playing a version of Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart's beautiful ballad, My Funny Valentine. Earlier tonight, we heard from the always accurate song stylist, Margaret Whiting, and we're going to hear from her again right now. Recorded in Los Angeles on Lincoln's birthday, February 12, 1947, for Capitol Records, here's Margaret Whiting with Frank DeVol's orchestra, and My Funny Valentine. On behalf of co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz, hoping your Valentine's Day is filled with love. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. If you care for me